This is the Rewind Movie Podcast. We're movie fans, shit spinners, individuals with no real critical insight whatsoever. You are about to enter the world of our imagination. You are entering our dark place. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Uh, I'm coming to get you, Barbara. Uh, it's Night of the Living Dev in London. I could have gone with any of those films, really. Dev rhymes with dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely in London. And don't open the window. It's Manchester Morgue coming at you from Jeonju, South Korea. It is very nice to speak with you again, Matt. You too. This is our uh, second one of these ventures without the... The other two lads? Yes, uh, uh, I'm sure they're insane, racked with jealousy. <laughs> they don't get to talk about what we get to talk about. Horror. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we have decided to uh, uh, compile an entire month of zombie movies. Now, mm-hmm. this was uh, an idea that you had and that you have uh, roped me into. Yeah. I was a willing participant, although I must admit uh, it was uh, after our last epic horror marathon. That was an undertaking, wasn't it? Particularly the blog, actually, at the end. The blog was pretty difficult. Yes. Uh, if you're listening to this and you are going to uh, uh, flip over to rewindmoviecast.com and you're going to read the blog that we're going to put together with this, if you notice that it's perhaps a little sparser, than the epic that we put together for Halloween. Uh, you'll know why. It's because we're knackered. Yeah. This one was born out of uh, the idea of wanting another monthly season. I'm obsessed with them. Horror Octobers. And uh, there's going to be one. Um, the 30 Days Hath September is going to be a tease <laughs> for an erotic uh, September that I'm going to do. Um, I've been looking at different ways to do it. And I found a zombie awareness month that I had no idea existed. So do we know uh, who um, established this awareness month? I think it stems out of the original release date of George Romero's night of the living dead. Um, And there there are various other connections to May as far as I could make out, but I'm not sure who actually created it. So I can't credit them. Uh, AKA may of the dead, which I actually prefer. Uh, and there's there's going to be a, a zombie bingo um, that has been created. Uh, so if you are playing along and watching one of these movies every night in May, God bless you, first of all. And uh, you can turn that bingo board into a, a fun drinking game, if you like. Have a look at the, the blog and there's a little blurb explaining it. And uh, we will be your guides through, through a zombie May. Exactly. So that is, uh, uh, we have selected one film per day every day in may yeah and we've also done it in chronological order we're wondering what order to do it in and we thought just so we can chart the evolution of the the genre or the subgenre, uh we're doing it in order so every film is going to be discussed year by year uh in chronological order yeah and we have your handy bingo card to check off some of the tropes recurring themes uh uh cliches in some cases of the various zombie films and as you say it can be a drinking game and that's just in time for june's uh cirrhosis of the liver awareness month hooray 
<laughs> okay, do you want to, shall we kick off? I mean, I, I wanted to say that this was researched and compiled over a couple of weeks and, and finalized on or around Easter Sunday, uh, when Jesus, the original zombie, rose from his grave and ate the 12 disciples. <laughs> so... It's it's very convenient the way this one has worked out. It, we announced it a while ago, and we're we were down to the wire, but we've uh, we're going to endeavour to bring you uh, hopefully some information and uh, recommendations and personal personal takes on the films. Yeah, um, how easy did you find it to compile uh, this many films? So we we should also say that we have uh, we came to a consensus decision on, of course, Romero's Night of the Living Dead. That was a given. So for the rest of the blog, we chose 15 films each to fill out the rest of the month. Um, given that this was your uh, your scheme, did you find it easy to come up with 15 films that you liked? Well, I pressured myself to be, to be very strict at first. Uh, Romero rules, um, and then kind of you know, venturing out from there, sticking to uh, the true zombie law and not really straying too far from it. And then I realized that some of the films I was neglecting were some real favorites of mine. So I broadened the net a bit and uh, a few of the films that you will see in the lineup, it's going to have the basement dwellers uh, tweeting us and saying they're not real zombies. But... um, (laughs) Uh, there, there was a series on YouTube that confirmed a lot of my thoughts on it. Would you like to talk about the uh, the Monstrum uh, series? Sure. Um, well, I uh, when you said we were going to pick uh, zombie films to fill out a month, I, I started thinking about it, and I actually struggled to get into it at the start. I, I'm a, a, a big George A. Romero fan, hmm. as I think a lot of people are. I'm hoping that if you're looking at the uh, cover image to this episode, oh, it's uh, fantastic. Uh, a little sketch that I that I put together of uh, of Bub, probably the 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 greatest individual zombie yep. in the entire zombie canon. The best zombie um, performance, uh, perhaps. Oh, yeah, absolutely, hands down. And uh, you'll see that it has a little scribble at the bottom. That is because the first time I ever went to a comic book convention and the first time I ever paid somebody for an autograph, which is not something I'd ever done. <laughs> Uh, was only a, uh, a few short years ago when I went to uh, a film uh, film and comic convention down here in London, uh, purely because George Romero was going to be appearing. And I went and stood in line and I took my little bub sketch mm-hmm. and, I, and I offered it up to him. And there's a photograph of the, my, a very nervous, my little very nervous shoulders hunched over while George Romero has a big, huge grin on his face yeah. looking at bub and signed it. And he's very complimentary about it. So, uh, uh, that's why we've used that for the cover image of this. I'm, I'm a big Romero fan and, and I liked a lot of zombie films, but I perhaps wasn't uh, um, a diehard zombie fan. And I really did struggle to compile 15 films that I liked. Like you say, if you're going with, you know, Romero rules zombies, mm. um, I I like a lot of kind of some of the, some of the more interesting entries yeah and then i feel like there's a lot of shit when mm-hmm. it comes to zombie movies i feel we'll as we go through i'm sure we'll talk about the different movements and the different eras and uh, the proliferation the pure overwhelming proliferation of zombie films that there are and yeah. the zombie mashups and zombies being inserted into different other genres and um i i started to think perhaps i didn't like zombies that much. <laughs> and then uh, 
uh, my in was a fantastic YouTube series by um, uh, a writer and academic called Dr. Emily Zarka. And she runs a series on uh, YouTube via um, PBS mm-hmm. in the States called Monstrum, which is the uh, examines the, the folkloric roots of uh, most of our uh, more prominent monsters, movie monsters. And uh, uh, I, this would have been, I, I guess, around Halloween last year that she decided that um, the zombie was so kind of um, uh, influential and so kind of unique as a, as a movie monster that she had to do a three-part series talking about the three different eras of the zombie. And that really helped me in structuring what we were going to talk about Um there's uh, uh we'll obviously link that in the blog you'll be able to, we'll embed the all three videos yeah um and that was what inspired my first choice and that was what got the ball rolling so my first pick was um chronologically mm-hmm. uh the first film so on the first of may uh if you are following us along on zombie <laughs> awareness month we're gonna start with uh 1932's uh white zombie Directed by Victor Halperin and starring Bella Lugosi and just some just some people, <laughs> some other people. Don't worry about it. You've never heard of them. From Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all. Bella Lugosi as Murder Legendre. I see death. Master of the undead damned. The sinister power behind the white zombie. My first thought here was Rob Zombie when uh, yes. I saw the title of this one. Are they connected? I'm in the back of my Dragula. Right, right, right. I, I picked White Zombie because uh, uh, by and large it is credited as being the first zombie film. The first mm-hmm. feature zombie film. And uh, it is kind of but not entirely following the uh the more traditional i say traditional and massive air quotes the more traditional mm-hmm. idea of the haitian voodoo zombie now um there's an awful lot of history to get into as regards haitian voodoo or vodon or uh the various iterations of that religion suffice to say that its roots are based in uh some traditional west african religions the idea of zombieism was was present in several of those uh and during the um unimaginable horrors of the transatlantic slave trade uh haiti was set up as the uh france's largest uh colony and was mm. um a sugar plantation and what you had there was you had people who had been brought in enslavement, um, bringing their uh, traditional religions. You had uh, being mixed into that. You had um, the the Christianity of mm-hmm. the of the uh, West, uh, and this all kind of got mixed together. And the idea of a, a zombie, which is a person who basically whose soul has been taken from them and that they are trapped within their own body and that their body is being uh, motivated and manipulated by a, uh, a slave master. A bokor is the, what they say in the, in, in the, in the uh, voodoo religion, but it doesn't take much of a leap in logic to see why that would become such a powerful and such a, a painful 
yeah um metaphor but not just metaphor but actual spiritual belief and religious belief so yeah um did you watch white zombie i i didn't watch white zombie but i i watched all of the the rostrum episodes and the the haitian okay. um one was particularly interesting uh because it seems like the zombie are we going to call it a genre or a subgenre horror is a genre Zombies are yeah. a subgenre. Shall we do that? I think, uh, yeah. Let's let's nail that down now, and we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll say it's a we'll say it's a subgenre. And there's some sub subgenres uh, like within that too. But um, I, what really interested me because you recommended that um, episode, and it's they're just inherently tied, aren't they? Race and uh, and zombies, like ev- every step of the way. Um, the uh, once we get to night, there's some obvious. Uh, uh, racial aspects uh, whether Romero you know was was conscious of it or not there's there's a lot of uh, uh, statements within within that text and within that that movie so uh, it was really interesting to go back and learn a little bit more yeah it's uh the the film itself is kind of an odd little curiosity um it's available on uh, on Amazon Prime if uh, well I've made a YouTube uh, playlist for this one and it's in full on YouTube too. So a lot of these films are going to be actually in that playlist. I know there's a cut of Dawn of the Dead that's currently on and uh, White Zombies on there. And some of the stranger foreign films in varying degrees of quality are going to be in that playlist too. So once again, uh, have a look at the blog and uh, check out that embedded playlist. Yeah. Um, So this is the only film that we've put into the list that's representing pre-Romero zombies Hmm. Um, largely because they they do vary in quality quite a lot Um, some of them are are, are very good Uh, some of them are extremely poor Uh, White Zombie had terrible reviews when it came out but uh, persisted as a bit of a cult classic Um, I do think it actually is pretty fascinating Uh, Bela Lugosi is actually great in it Um, there's some very unusual and innovative but very distracting visuals Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of wipes oh right yeah Star Wars wipes yeah sometimes (laughs) you'll have a wipe and then it'll stop halfway and then another wipe will come up from underneath and and bisect the screen again and at one point I think there's four wipes on screen at the same time that didn't quite make it all the way across that's fascinating um, for 1932 isn't it I I thought so and um it's uh is a strange little film um it is uh Bela Lugosi plays the Bokor in the film, which is already bizarre. Um <laughs> because he is very clearly a man of Eastern European descent. Yes. Uh he also lives in a giant stormy castle <laughs> on a hillside, which I wasn't sure was particularly um uh accurate to the landscape of Haiti, although I did find out that Haiti actually translates to uh mountainous island, so that turns out okay. that there are mountains. Well, somebody so, did their research, whether it's yeah. technically right or not. Yeah. Um but uh it's it's a strange film and it represents kind of a whole uh genre of films which are um they engage with race in a very strange way. I think mm-hmm. America was repulsed by and fascinated by every aspect of this. Um a lot of it is based on a book, which is by a guy called William Seabrook, I believe is his name. Right. Uh, William B. Seabrook. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book in 1929. This is, um, Haiti has a, a, an awful and, and very painful history uh, up until obviously recent times uh, because it was the first um, community which overthrew um, its uh, slave owners. 
Haiti was the first independent nation founded by former slaves. However, um, in the geopolitical times, that is not something that could be allowed to succeed. Right. Uh, the international community, uh, on behalf of France, uh, essentially kept Haiti in a kind of indentured servitude, if not outright slavery, basically saying that as a compensation for the slave uprising and the overthrow of the French uh, um, rule there, basically all profits from Haiti would still be funneled directly to France. So uh, a series of increasingly um, brutal leaders uh, had to impose or ended up imposing very, very, very strict rules on their own people. And then uh, in the 1920s, of course, America decided that they had had enough and that, of yeah. course, it was so very dangerous to have an independent nation run by uh, um by black people basically so close to their doorstep that they felt compelled to invade. And of course, when they did, they brought in a bunch of um, writers and, uh, and, and academics and researchers for the first time ever. Mm. And this was the first time that they were exposed to voodoo and witchcraft. And, um, and they brought back these sensational tales of, uh, of the, the, massive scare quotes savages and mm. this i think helps feed into the, the the very clear very racially uncomfortable roots of the early zombie movies yeah and it's the first step isn't it in in this evolution that we're going to discuss it goes through some real ups and downs and i'm not really too sure where we are now in 2021 but i guess we'll we'll get there at the end we'll maybe we'll learn something on this journey <laughs> Uh, so yeah, after so. that one, we, we, I jumped over a few because there's a couple that I really liked that didn't quite make it. Uh, I was interested in The Walking Dead because of the title, primarily, which is another, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Bella Lugosi. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a Boris Karloff. It's a Boris Karloff. Uh, directed by Michael Curtis. <laughs> Bella would not be happy with that. Apologies, Bella. Uh, I Walked With a Zombie also popped up. Uh, these are thirties and forties and then carnival of souls, which is something that I really enjoyed, but I'm not sure even, even with my wide net, we can call them zombies. Um, uh, and then we're into last man on earth, um, which kind of inspired the next choice because I'm skipping over plague of the zombies. I'm going to do that for our hammer, our hammer podcast in four years or whenever we end up doing that. Um, so we're on to Night of the Living Dead, 1968. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> night of the Living Dead. Okay, well, this is the original, really, that created the modern zombie um george a romero in many ways the original robert rodriguez the original um, john carpenter the guy that wore all the hats and and made one of the the best and most important independent films of all time uh, out of uh, pittsburgh um it's a, a, a film about the failure of the 60s um and the idea that that nothing had changed and the rage and the frustration and the sadness all kind of comes through this film. There's a story on the great documentary, Birth of the Living Dead, 
uh, about the making of the film where George was driving, I think, to New York City to sell the picture. And he had all of the reels in his car and uh, an announcement on the radio said that uh, Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And in right. that moment, um, it's, it's you know, George must have known what he had in that car and uh, how how valuable that material had suddenly become. Um, yeah. I don't know how spoilerific we want to be, but there's uh, an incident at the end of that film, which um, is one of the, the strongest kind of statements on, uh, you know, um, a race at the time in, in, in cinema, really. That, those things weren't really been done. We have a black protagonist. Um, yeah. We have, um, you know, a lot of the other actors working around him. And there's some, there's some really unusual things that you wouldn't, usually have seen there's a moment where he um you know slaps a white woman for example uh there there are times when he fights with a with white men and uh really asserts himself in a in a positive way um the the film itself can be can be heavy-handed at times looking back i actually for my sins watched um rewatched a colorized version on youtube um, I was so about get... <laughs> it was actually the first version that I ever watched of it. I, I watched a um a, a colorized uh, DVD in a cardboard sleeve that came with the free with a copy of the Daily Express during the short-lived wow. um, DVD wars of the right-wing quasi tabloids of the late nineties. Do you remember there was a yeah, yeah. period where the Mail and the Express would compete with free DVDs? I have so many of them. I I had Nuns on the Run. That was the only one I had because we didn't have those papers. So I don't know where I got it, but I had a free copy of Nuns on the Run. I was not a, a huge fan of having the Daily Express around, but um, no, I was but... very intrigued by Night of the Living Dead, and at that point had never seen it. It's it's an odd one because it's yeah. a film that um, famously is essentially in in the public domain. It is now, yeah, and it's been released on so many different um, through so many labels, I should say, on uh, on DVD and Blu-ray over the years. I think the Criterion is thought to be the best. Uh, it's got yeah. some. It's got a really good transfer. Uh, and and it is sacrilegious to to say I watched it in color, but um, I, I'd, I'd seen the black and white quite a lot, so I I watched the the color leading up to this one, particularly because I want to talk about the remake a little bit later, and I wanted to get an idea of the uh, the differences between the two. Um, but yeah, there's a bit of a heavy heavy handed musical score that dates it. It'll give you a bit of a headache if you're not careful. Yeah. Um, there's some really bold lighting decisions. Um, uh, the, the deer heads. Uh, the jump scared deer heads are very evil dead Sam Raimi that we might get into later. Yeah. Um, it's a bit clumsy, a bit clunky, but it, it's really stood the test of time. This one, um, and th this one really depends on, uh, how you feel about the slow moving zombies and the, the crowds and the hordes really, um, this multitude of slow moving zombies surrounding a house and the, yeah. the, the terror of this girl who's totally outnumbered. Um, it, it's, it's all, it's the difference between suspense and horror in a way. It's not overtly terrifying, particularly looking yeah. back, but the suspense is still there. And, uh, as I say, the, the, the subtext and the, the, the racial commentary, whether how, how aware of it Romero was or not, author intent is only part of these things, isn't it? And it's, a, it's become a really, really important, not just zombie film, not just horror film, but, um, piece of cinema and up until now that the zombies that we'd uh that we'd experienced on on film not we we weren't alive we're not that old 
um, the, the audiences we're experiencing were largely based around, um, they were metaphorical, but they were metaphorical in the sense that they were basically representative of white America's fear of the black other mm. and films which are largely to one extent or another kind of about validating those fears and potentially stoking them i i may be misspeaking there there may be some secretly mm. uh progressive films in the 1940s <laughs> and 1950s but i very much doubt it um whereas this was the first time that we had uh the zombies and uh the z word or the z word if you're on this side of the pond is right. not ever spoken in the film and at the time romero didn't want to refer to them as zombies either was it ghouls he went for reanimated ghouls it was and uh uh the the zombie was was kind of attached to it retroactively largely by members of the of the public and the press and i guess much in the same way that musical genres only exist because some writer decides that that's what it is uh it would appear that the invention of the modern zombie was potentially an accident and yeah. a, a, a misuse of nomenclature, but uh, it's certainly one of the first times that there is an overt um, metaphor involved, which is that um, Romero would sometimes refer to the zombie horde as basically the the silent majority, the Nixon era silent majority. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the great faceless masses of people who actively want to keep us in you know oppressive circumstances and actively will continue to prop up increasingly yeah. mean-spirited governments and i think that's going to be an interesting one to come back to as we go through the various eras is like what is the zombie horde because it's a faceless mass of uh, of of um of threat as opposed to a singular characterful threat yeah and in, in something like Dawn, for example, they, they used it to a completely different effect. And then much later, when we get onto things like World War Z or Z, um, you know, you can ask, does it represent anything? It's more insectoid or something like that by that point. Right. It's really bizarre. But that's one of your bingo squares. So no matter what that zombie horde is doing, make sure you have a drink or, or tick that box. Exactly. As long as somebody seems like they are making a metaphor. Uh, however heavy-handed in fact the, the more heavy-handed the better i think oh yeah yeah so that's uh 1968 uh and and i wanted to say there i forgot to say uh the last man on earth uh not really last man on earth the omega man um from 1971 was actually um the book of that was an influence on george's night of the living dead right it didn't come out until 1971 so Again, are they vampires? Are they are they undead? Are they zombies? I don't know, but uh, ne neither the Omega Man or the dreadful CGI of uh, I Am Legend made it into the, uh, the my final fifteen, and I don't think yours either. So uh, you got unfortunately not. The only remarkable thing I can think of about the uh, Will Smith I Am Legend is <laughs> that um, uh, the great Mike Patton was the voice of most of the vampire zombies. Okay, all right. Which which is pretty cool. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> nice to uh, see Mike get some work. <laughs> yeah, always. Not that he needs it. He's in like 56,000 pounds. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm going to skip over the next few. Tombs of the Blind Dead gets an honorable mention from me just because the... the Great the, title. It's an amazing title. And the, um, the, the creatures in that one are kind of like move along like they're on little skateboards and they move very slowly and not very intimidating. But again, if you're outnumbered by them, a little bit creepy. Um, yeah. honorable mention for children shouldn't play with dead things and death dream which didn't quite make the cut so i'm gonna go forward and uh then living dead at manchester morgue 
Look, it's not my fault, Sergeant, if Christ and saints are out of fashion. Satan's all the rage these days. Listen, boy, you keep getting on my nerves, and I'm going to give you another kind of house to look after. One with lots of bars in the windows. We'd better reinforce that door. Take the lamp. Just imagine the sergeant's face when he finds out. Message for you. Look, I know it sounds silly, but is it possible? I mean, could a film fail to catch an image for any reason? Well, a ghost, maybe. A.K.A. Don't open the window. <laughs> uh, A.K.A. What's the, what's the other title? I've completely forgotten. I oh um, uh, let sleeping corpses lie. Let sleeping corpses lie is the other one. That's fantastic. Okay, so it's got three titles. I kind of know it by uh, the Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. Uh, there's a line in the Channel Four uh, show Dead Set said by Andy Nyman, where he goes face like a Manchester Morgue, and <laughs> uh, I didn't get the reference until um, I discovered that film. So, um, yeah, we're on to that one next. And this is one that I stuck with mainly because I thought it was British. I was losing my patience with it, but I was like, oh, Lake Windermere, okay. And, you know, that looks like the Dales and uh, that kind of looks like Manchester. I think it is. But then I discovered it was really an Italian production. Um, I thought there was this genius British filmmaker with all this Italian flair, but hmm. um, it was really from Italy. Um You've got some bizarre-looking British shopkeepers because they're probably not actually British. Um, the The story is set in the English countryside near Windermere, but was predominantly filmed in Italy, Rome, I think. And uh, there's some stuff shot in Cheadle and uh, the Peak District. Um, but yeah, the majority uh, comes out of Italy. Uh, boob fans will be very disappointed overall, but <laughs> can enjoy... Uh, the first few minutes with with a female streaker inexplicably crossing a road um, for no apparent reason at all. Uh, <laughs> Contractually got, obligated, I guess. Could be. Um, you've, got some, you've got some very funny, cheeky dialogue. Uh, I don't know who is uh, approving these accents, but we've got a, a guy that kind of sounds... Well, I don't know I've got a list here. You've got Captain Birdseye advertising. You've got colloquialisms like do me a favor darling uh, <laughs> don't try to be funny all right um that'll be two quid <laughs> Ta- very much things like that don't get your knickers in a twist and it's very bizarre like but i i kind of bought it i really thought it was british for a while there's a little blue mini cooper um some very strange english bobbies with italian accents they again this is kind of a loose one as far as how uh, you know, how uh, much of a zombie film it is as such. I, it's not really a, a Romero style, but there are corpses rising. Um, the uh, There's a character in it that reminds me of Vic Reeves' character in Catrick. Do you remember um, oh, the, yeah. the, the NYPD, the North Yorkshire <laughs> I, Police I stash <laughs> my backup firearm in my Tupperware box. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He, he's kind of like somewhere between that and Columbo. Um, he's kind of Irish American. And I, again, I don't know what was going on. Uh, I wrote down <laughs> the gurgling dead. They, they gurgle a lot in this one. They have, okay. they have strength. They can fight you and they have the ability to raise each other from the dead, which was kind of an interesting 
edition. We've got we've got um, obviously Romero's Dawn coming up soon, but this one was uh, kind of in, in between Night and Dawn, so there's still some playing around with the law going right. on. Right. Um, it's uh, it was it's interesting to see a film that had locations in it that could have been near where I grew up. And that kind of hooked me into it a little bit. Whether it'll hook everyone else, I'm I'm not too sure. But um, the uh, the zombies use weapons um, in okay. this one. We, we didn't mention on in night. Um, I found it very surprising that he he picks up a rock at the beginning and and tries to smash his way into Barbara's car. Yes, um, I'd forgotten all about that completely, and I was thinking forward to the other zombie films where they actually they're a little bit more self-aware and they yeah begin to use weapons and things like that but that's always been there so there's an axe in this one um yeah it's it's all it's kind of bizarrely um set up with this uh, machine that kills parasites on a farm and uh that that somehow uh it leads to a a healthy apple crop that year but at the same time all of these bizarre instances start happening there's a there's a homeless man that returns from the dead and uh, people begin seeing him and he he has these strange violent encounters with people and it all kind of branches out from there so there's a bit of techno fear here a little bit of science um uh, you know distrust of science and things like that motivating it but um not not a terrific film overall but if you're interested in the genre i would definitely uh, seek this one out um i haven't yet but uh i feel that we're going to discuss a couple of films from italy i think mm. as we go through um but certainly the um the the creativity and just shamelessness of the italian b-movie industry has always been a fascination now chiara has been quite helpful in that she herself is not massively into this specific genre at all, but yeah. she, uh, from her time uh, as a writer in Italy, she knows a lot of people who are. And um, it seems that uh, certainly within Italian film critic circles, there is a great deal of fascination with the trashier end of the of the Italian industry because it seems mm. in the seventies, especially, they just they latched onto zombies in such a huge way. I think possibly in the same way that a lot of low budget filmmakers uh, in, in the States and in the UK did as well, which is realizing just how easy it was yeah. to have a zombie. <laughs> you get your mates, you get some out of work actors, you slather them in a kind of greenish makeup. You can be as gross as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and you discuss there the, the, the lore of the zombie, yeah, which will probably try and fathom as we go through but as you say it it was never really fixed to begin with so it's difficult to know the rules when the rules are kind of uh uh were never really that well defined Mm -hmm. so um uh uh, yeah manchester morgue sounds like a fascinating one and i i'm a i'm a real sucker for uh uh out of place um colloquialisms from different regions there's something always You'll flip for this one, then. The, the just the accents yeah. alone are, are worth worth a look. Um, so onwards from there, I'm bypassing Cronenberg's uh, Rabid, and I'm going to settle on Shockwaves from 1977. You are now in the deep end of horror. 
shock waves. Once they were almost human. You mean to say that what we all saw out there is just a mirage? It was a minor underwater disturbance with a hot sky acting on a cold current coming from a mile down below. Something unknown, something unforeseen, something unspeakable lives below, and it lives to destroy. They have risen. Uh, like bizarrely, there are 26 or more of these zombie Nazi movies uh, making up a peculiar little sub subgenre, really. Uh, again, it's pre-dawn by one year. It features shells, mindless workers with no emotion or pain, subservient to their masters in this kind of coma-like state, alive but appearing dead. Um, if I can try and sell this one to you quickly, the Todas Corps, or Death Corps, consists of the perfect weapon, um, a soldier that is capable of fighting without weapons, uh, designed to adapt to any environment. And this is all, all by the Nazis, all by the SS. And uh, they took the bodies of hooligans and thugs and pathological murderers and sadists and uh, reanimated them um, to man these underwater submarines. Of course they did. And uh, the problem was they became too erratic and they couldn't be controlled. And they had this innate desire for violence. So when the war ended, Peter Cushing, who um, uh, is one of the leads in this, uh, took them to sea, sunk the ship, and then lived on this remote island close by. Um, and uh, yeah, the the story is really about our, our group of, again, not the greatest actors, but uh, the people who find themselves encountering the Todas Corps on this... Um, thought to be abandoned island and getting picked off one by one by them that honestly sounds fantastic you have absolutely sold that to me i had no idea what this was beyond the title i didn't really look into this one and um yeah that is fascinating that's cool i mean cushing was was in star wars the same year yeah um as uh grand moff tarkin one of the worst names (laughs) in in film history um so yeah this one again relies on a certain amount of suspense but a a lot of that uh, stems from jaws i think um it's it's made fairly soon after jaws and you've got a lot of povs uh looking up at potential victims um with, with these these underwater kind of barnacled zombie nazis with uh these bizarre glasses they've got these goggles on uh, the only way you can defeat them apparently is by knocking their goggles off because then they don't know where they are. And they, can't, they can't really <laughs> figure out what's going on. And then they stumble into a hedgerow or something. And then you, you can kind of, and then they dissolve like for no reason. Oh. Uh, kind of decay very quickly if they don't have the glasses to protect themselves. The goggles, they do nothing. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's got this quite a pulsing synth score that resembles gremlins in a weird way. Um, it kind of exudes a, a clunky seventies look and feel, but it's very accessible. Um, but it, it's quite tame at the same time. It reminded me of the original Westworld in many ways. It was right. scary and suspenseful at times, but nothing explicit happens. Uh, there's no real gore in this one. They, they kind of rely on dragging you under. Even if you're in like a puddle, you feel like one of them could get you. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in the shallow end of a swimming pool that um, 
that sort of plays out. But once they disappear under Zavorta with their with their goggles on, you know, you you don't know where they are. You don't know where they're going to pop up and get you. So it, it's you know <laughs> the, the premise. They have a strategic advantage. They do. They do. They can lurk. They can lurk in the swamps and the, any shallow water. And if you're walking amid these kind of big tree roots, as they do on the island. Uh, they could be anywhere and they could jump out and, and get you in the blink of an eye. So, but again, this one relies on that nightmare logic of no matter how fast you run, you'll never quite escape them. It's almost like a Jason Voorhees um, style of, of pursuit that ends up going on. And and the terror, and I'll use that word extremely generously, is is in the, the premise that they can just appear at any point and, and pop up in, in, no matter how shallow the water they'll, they'll pop up and, and drown you. And once they pull you down, you've, you've got, you've got no hope, but uh, wow. yeah. So hopefully I've sold you on that one. I, I really went for that one based on the premise and I wasn't disappointed really. It's very, it's a very short film as well. Um, I can't remember how short, I think it's under, a, it's under an hour and a half, I think. So yeah, that one was a, a fun watch for me. Always happy with that. Interesting that so early in the subgenre in the timeline, you have uh, the idea of uh, the revived deceased being used as bioweapons. That's going to come up quite yes, a few times. Yes, that's a recurring theme, definitely. Uh, and also, you know, that um, Nazis were the original, like, faceless bad guy. In, in cinema history, you were allowed to kill a Nazi on screen. Yes. Yeah. In any number of ways, because the Nazis are kind of in the, uh, in the, the sort of, the telling of 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 the, the the Western history canon is like they're the uh, they're the only genuine bad guys in history. Mm. Bad guys who wanted bad things and they got what was coming to them, so you don't have to think about any of them as human beings. So um, uh, zombie Nazis, that I guess would explain why that's such a, a prolific subgenre. Yeah, I, I think the only other ones I'd is it Dead Snow and uh... there was one recently with um, Wyatt Russell, which had a great trailer, and I was inherently suspicious of it because I felt like it might end up being shit. Is that Overlord by any chance? I think very possibly yes. Yeah, there's a t- 2018 Overlord. Um... That's probably the one. I think. Yes, Wyatt Russell, he's in it. Yep. After paddling around in the shallow end of zombie Nazis. Uh, the daddy of the subgenre uh, was back one year later, um, once again with the uh, with the assistance of uh, the Italian B movie film industry, uh, mm-hmm. an up and coming schlock director. Although I think it's very unfair to call him a schlock director, mm-hmm. uh, Dario Argento um, was was convinced that that George uh, had another one in him, yep. and he decided that. Uh, Following on from Night of the Living Dead, uh, we would have the Dawn of the Dead. The Living had been dropped at this point, I guess, just because Dawn of the Dead sounds far cooler. It does, yeah. And there's there's less stuff to put on a marquee, and it's just yeah. a bit, bit cleaner. In 1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Now, George Romero brings...
brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the Dead. Meet me on the roof at 9 o'clock. Get out. I don't believe We're it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. A, a strange film in many ways. Um, uh, one which is quite rightly in the pantheon, not just of great zombie movies, not just of great horror films, but of great films, uh, hands down. But uh, a film that is, is, when you look at it in isolation, extremely strange. It was, um, Romero was invited to Italy by um, uh, Argento to, to write the film. So he wrote it in, in Italy with some input from uh, Romero and others. Uh, but then the film was shot in uh, a mall, an actual working mall, which was owned by, I believe, a friend of his. This is out in New Jersey. Right. Yeah. This is the Monroeville Mall. Yes. Um, and as the dialogue tells us, uh, malls were still a fairly recent concept because uh, Ken Furry has to tell us what it is. Yeah. <laughs> is it yeah. Ken Furry who tells us what Ken, it is? Ken Furry, yeah. Uh, Keenan, yeah. Keenan's dad. Yes. From Keenan uh, Cal fame. He explains to us that this is one of them modern shopping mall. It's a uh, a film which I'm sure uh, most people are familiar with, although interesting to know which version people are familiar with, because as with a lot of these films, as with Night, so George never caught a break. Night of the Living Dead, uh, because of a copyright fuck up, went immediately into um, public domain and he never made any money because anyone could bootleg prints. Uh, Dawn of the Dead um, was one of a, it was an early example of uh, the idea of low budget filmmaking being uh, the budget being pieced together from various different national resources, mainly from Italy, which meant that Argento kept the uh, exploitation rights for Europe, which meant that he could also go ahead and recut the film for Europe as he saw fit. And he did, as did Brilliantly titled uh, Zombie. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) With an eye. uh, the subtext is the thing I think that gets the most attention here, uh, yeah. Uh, because the subtext is, is largely the text. Um, it's uh, uh, famously his his screed against uh, consumerism and the kind of mindless consumption. And every year uh, that there's another, maybe not in 2020, but in most other <laughs> years, you would see images of. Uh, malls and shopping centers and big box stores uh, on Black Friday, and they would be juxtaposed with images of people banging on the glass with their blood streaked hands. It's yeah. like, why do they come here? They remember. They know this place <laughs> is important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's it's brilliant. Yeah, uh, I think it holds up. Uh, I think it's also possibly the the dawn. Uh, that's not even a pun. Uh, <laughs> the, um, of the idea of a zombie movie being a fun time, even though it goes to some very dark places. And I'd forgot, I guess if you don't watch it for a while, you forget how brutal the opening of the movie is. Yes. And how it continues the, the themes that uh, Romero explored in night, which is that you have a, a tower block, which is peopled almost entirely by uh, minorities. Mm-hmm. Being There's a lot of racial and- epithets thrown around. Yeah. And they are gunned down mercilessly by uh, uh, some very heavily tooled up white cops. Yes, yeah, and it, it's it's an unusual film. You've got 
a scene where two kids, two zombie kids are shot and killed with a machine gun. And then you've got um, another scene where the zombies are getting custard pied by Tom Savini and the gang. So yes, it, it's a re- really bizarre one as far as tone. It, it it jumps around a lot, but it 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 does both in equal measure. It makes you it makes you laugh, and it's got um, it, again in 2004's remake um, tr- tried to do do stuff with the the interior of the mall and how fun it would be and. And things like that so it takes that and kind of runs with it in a more contemporary way but but the original dawn has some of that too but it also has that like you said the darkness is still running sort of throughout it and it, and it develops a lot of um stuff with the the lore in terms of reanimation times that was your favorite yes. uh zombie bingo square uh arbitrary reanimation time and i've yes. actually drawn a picture of our uh i've forgotten the character's name the chap that takes a long time to turn he seems to turn at the convenience of uh, of the script and the, the the dramatic beats of the story, and that's one of the tropes that you can you can spot throughout a lot of these films. Yes, uh, lesser characters or characters who are there to provide us with a jump scare will turn very 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 quickly. Characters mm. that we've come to know and love will suffer, and they will uh, uh, they will slowly succumb and then slowly regenerate. Which again, if you're making this stuff up as you go along, I don't see why not. I think um, <laughs> dramatic license uh, should really take precedent on this. But um, uh, it also marks the the first uh, foray into zombie movies of the great Tom Savini, who, as you mentioned, custard pies some <laughs> zombies off a motorbike. Yes, he does. And the the very famous uh, machete, um, uh, machete to the, the head of a zombie that's done terrifically well. Yes. Um, uh, Tom Savini is is a name that will probably crop up a lot throughout these films. As someone I I first saw in From Dust Till Dawn that we've discussed on the on okay, right. I'd never encountered him before, and then working backwards from there, I learned who he was and the importance of of him. And he was in Vietnam, and he took a lot of uh, inspiration from the the horrific things he'd seen there, and put them into his work as a, an effects artist. And uh, a little bit later, we'll get to his masterpiece, I think. But um, yeah. for, for now, we've got him appearing as a as a, a leather clad biker doing flips and swinging <laughs> around and custard pies and everything. So yeah, we love Tom. He's a he's a wild man and a, and a very interesting dude, and always worth listening to. He's a real raconteur. But um, yeah, it was. Uh... Uh, very telling that that his his experiences of Vietnam seem to color the you know the the work that he did and uh, yeah. Uh, also, he uh, a lot of people were quite put off at the time and also possibly looking back about the uh, the color of the blood and the unrealism of it. And I think that yeah. there's a few it, too many green zombies in here. I think he was just uh, putting a lot of green yeah green makeup on on them at the end i think just to try and get through but um that that kind of um forged an idea of what the zombie looked like at that point as well like you so you do associate green with zombies like if you yes. if i asked a kid in in my class to draw a zombie they'd probably draw them green i would have thought. um actually yeah there was a, a a time when i was teaching and i had a class of uh two five or six year olds uh mm. they were awful it was my worst class i hated it it was 45 <laughs> minutes of torture yeah. every week yeah and uh they're the ones uh, that beat you up occasionally uh, one of them punched me in the balls yeah. and 
sometimes towards the end of my tenure as a teacher, I just gave up on them. And yeah. I, would just, <laughs> I would, I would print out like uh, coloring exercises and then I would just try and get them to focus on that just long enough. And so I, I had some, uh, like about a baby and a giant, it was some stupid little game that we we're supposed to play. And I handed the, the things to the kid and <laughs> one kid, Kai, Kai <laughs> um, was it grabbed a green crayon and he stabbed it into the paper on a picture of a baby and he just ground the, the ground the, the, the green into it and he just kept repeating over and over again, Akachan zombie, Akachan <laughs> zombie, which means baby zombie. Wow. Uh, I was, I was genuinely scared of that kid. Wow. So yeah, we, we have, um, I, I just found out by the way, the, uh, the character's name was Roger. He takes an, an awfully long time to turn, but it kind of, it does de- depict, it's one of the early depictions of a transition, I think. You don't yes. really see anything prior to that, as far as I could make out. Everything in Night is kind of done where yeah. they fall into a comatose state and then arise from it. Um, but th- but this this one, you actually see more of a process and uh, Ken Forey is there just waiting for him to... To, to come out of it and uh, so he can finish him off yeah it's uh yeah. so yeah um as we said that was a uh, an italian funded film yes and as you also mentioned that was titled zombie mm. <laughs> with us with a short eye at the end yes, yes. Uh, zombie. so um italy has a tremendous law which means that you are allowed to invent sequels for things that your film is not a sequel to uh i don't know the specifics of it this is just something that i i read and would like to look into further but that is the reason why uh lucio fulci's zombie flesh eaters is actually called zombie 2 despite having nothing to do with uh with dawn of the dead Anyone on board? Yes, it looks abandoned. One more step and I'm going to blast you. Now freeze where you are. Yes, it's my father's boat. And uh, how long since you last spoke to him? Well, we have to go to Matul. We're trying to locate Anne's father. She hasn't heard from him for some time. Not a cool place to hit. I'm going to tell everyone that you're the one who's crazy. Demented, cruel, evil. What exactly did my father die of, Dr. Minor? And the boat's crew, what happened to them? What is about the dead coming back to life again and having to be killed a second time? These islands, fantastic legends, voodooism, zombies. It's an unofficial sequel of sorts yes an unofficial sequel but was allowed to be marketed as a sequel and was tremendously Mm. successful in its time um it's uh yet another example of uh, italian ingenuity and it is also a a kind of a showcase of the best and worst of italian b-movies which is Mm. that at their best uh they have a creativity and a madness to them and a, a kind of an intensity like a strange there are sequences where people will just go for it and you will see things that at the time you would not have seen other filmmakers pushing themselves quite that far yeah uh, but what they also have is a narrative incoherence 
and uh, character motivations which are largely non-existent, um, contrasted with the fantastic um, depiction of a small band of survivors that Romero loves to go back to. He loves to see how people, especially small groups of people trapped in an impossible situation, react. You do not get the same, unfortunately, from the various characters in Zombie Flesh Eaters. But what you do get is uh, the infamous sequence where... Uh, <laughs> I know where you're going already with this. Where <laughs> a shark trainer, a local shark trainer who yeah. had lived in the in the Caribbean country. So this is a film that is set in the Caribbean and actually returns the zombies back to, to an extent to their uh, voodoo uh, mm. roots albeit without a great deal of explanation as to why that is happening. You have a doctor on a remote Caribbean island and he's trying to treat these patients. He has a uh, uh, an unsatisfied wife who later has a completely unmotivated shower sequence before getting her <laughs> eyeball smashed into a piece of wood in the other. Yeah, that's the, a very famous effect now, isn't it? Looking, back. Uh, It looks incredible up, yeah. up until this day. Is, and it just keeps going and it's like mm-hmm. eye trauma. I think we've mentioned somewhere else that like eye trauma is a very specific and very special type. Of oh, uh, that's a teaser for our um, uh, giallo bingo. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, there, there was going to be a square that was like uh, an author. Yeah. It was, it was going to be like uh, Fulci does stuff with eyes yeah. and Argento throws people through windows. Was it? Yes. And yeah. It was the other one. Len, was it Lindsay or you've got uh, oh Barva Barva. Loves, uh, Barva loves a black glove. Yes, yeah. Um, so it was something like whenever you see an author trademark slaying, yeah. finish your drink or something silly like that. But that's that's to be continued. That'll probably take <laughs> us another year or so. Um, so yeah, that's that's a later sequence in the, in the film with the uh, the, the yeah. horrendous uh, zombie putting his hands through the the, the broken door and pulling this. Mm. Eyeball onto a, onto a splinter and it is horrific. But the other famous scene is the far madder uh, sequence of a yeah. uh, the, uh, a shark trainer from the from the island was without apparently without Fulci's knowledge uh, drafted in to dress as a zombie, <laughs> go underwater with an underwater cameraman and literally fight a shark. <laughs> uh, I, I, Against his knowledge, this this wasn't conceived by uh, apparently Fulci. Fulci was not there. It was the producer took that took that step on his own he took the um he took uh the effects guy and an underwater cameraman and they just went off and shot this uh sequence which became a real centerpiece of the film it's certainly yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the most iconic image because it is just insane that anyone thought to do this and they just pulled it off as a talking point as well it's one of the first things that crops up when you when you yeah. discuss this film uh it's it's um in the rewatching it's even stranger because what i forgot is that it's preceded by uh one of the characters there's a a, a journalist and a woman and i believe she is the daughter of one of the doctors on the island who's researching and trying to treat these uh what we now find out as zombies uh they are in new york uh, uh the first thing you see is a a, a small sailboat uh, a really in- impressive image it's this little sailboat just kind of drifts up the hudson in front of the new york skyline and it turns out that there's zombies on the boat right um and um a journalist a british american journalist is dispatched by his definitely not sicilian <laughs> editor uh-huh. at the new york times <laughs> 
who is tremendously dubbed and very impressively mustachioed. And uh, he goes off to the Caribbean and he gets on a sailboat with a young couple. Um, she has an impressive perm and the smallest chance this side of uh, Sigourney Weaver at the end of Alien. And what I'd forgot is that the scene before the zombie fighting the shark, she just strips down to those very small pants and puts on a scuba uh, tank and goes uh, essentially naked scubaing, and then is discovered by the zombie, which attacks her underwater. She smashes him in the eye with a bit of coral. More eye trauma for us. It's um, If you like shockwaves, you're going to love this. Yes. Uh, Logical next step. It's it's a real it's a real mad film. Uh, there is talk of it being the curse, but they don't go much further than that. It's mm-hmm. the curse of the island. It's also the the island is not Haiti. It's a another anonymous Caribbean island. The film isn't particularly interested in law as such, although it does have bite transmission. So okay. uh, when you are bit, you will turn. Uh, but it's not the recently undead because, um, oh, sorry, the recently deceased. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at one point in the film, uh, a bunch of conquistadors wake up and start fucking people up. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, the score is is also incredible. It's uh, the the kind of death disco of Fabio Fritzi. I went to see Fabio Fritzi play uh, uh, a selection of his scores at the Union Chapel on Halloween a few years back. Oh, wow. Years back, I guess now. Uh, called Fritzy Two Fulcis, this kind of very cool, debonair, older, suave gentleman and his band. I hope they lit a lot of candles in there. They did. The whole place looked incredible. And they had a screen and they were playing like a selection of clips from his film. There was a guy who was dressed as the zombie who was being attacked by a shark, as in he was dressed as a zombie and he had strapped a, like a stuffed toy of a shark around him. <laughs> oh, he went the whole hog. He did. Um, Fulci went on to make a few other zombie films. We didn't put any of them in here. I think just because this is the cleanest of the zombies that he did. I think his later work became a little more kind of uh, where he had like the apocalypse movies. So you had City of the Living Dead. There was also mm-hmm. somebody at the church dressed as the priest who hung himself ah. in the in City of the Living Dead. Wow. That's pretty blasphemous to turn up to Union Chapel dressed as that. But it is, but you know. Fair play to him. I was impressed. Um, and uh, the, I, the one that I mentioned at the Halloween Rewind uh, uh, Marathon, which I think is the best of them, is the Beyond. But you start getting into apocalyptic fiction. There's a real crossover between zombie fiction and apocalyptic fiction. Um, a lot of the later films, which didn't quite make the cut for us, I think probably ride that line. But uh, while the Beyond, I think, is the best of the films, uh, I think... Um, zombie Flesh Eaters, a.k.a. Zombie 2, is certainly the cleanest and the maddest. Well said. Very good. So that's uh, what year was Zombie then? That was um, so that was 1979. That was very quick turnaround. 79. So next, we're jumping forward to 1981 for something that was a, a very late addition for me because I didn't know if this really fits into the zombie genre. There's a, a Reddit thread that made me doubt myself, but I'm glad I put it in. Uh, it's it's 1981's The Evil Dead. Stephen King, author of Carrie, said, Evil Dead is the most ferociously original horror film of the year. If you think he's kidding, see for yourself. Evil Dead, they got up on the wrong side of the grave. I fear that the only way to stop those possessed by the spirits of the book is through the act of bodily dismemberment. 
um, the way I I think the the two of us justified it is that there's a reanimated corpse. So automatically, we're we're probably on the right track. Yeah. Um, I could sense a few of the basement dwellers squirming in their mother's basement <laughs> seats, um, <laughs> but um, it, it it ticked half a dozen of my zombie bingo boxes. You know, it's got severed limbs. Uh, it's got a grave emergence. Um, you know, it's and, and I just associate the the the, pos- the possessed in this movie with as being zombie like, if not strictly Romero uh, level zombies. Um, but yeah, th- this opened it up for me because there's a few films that are going to follow the. If, if Evil Dead qualifies, then it, it opened up to a lot of other other things that I thought were particularly interesting because of the nature of, of a virus, or particularly as we're going through the COVID nineteen era it's it seemed strange to not include those films so possession films are are another one that's a bit of a stretch but um but i i think i can justify it here um it's the 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 overall quality of my selections would have suffered if i if i didn't widen the net a little bit right so um yeah the, the the force as they call it in this one right from the opening shot um i think was achieved by pushing a dinghy through the water I saw a behind the scenes photograph of, of how they did it and it gives it the appearance of the, the camera floating above the water. Uh, they also did a lot of stuff with two by fours with people on, on either end of a, of a two by four with a camera nailed to the, uh, to the center of it. And that, and that gives you that, um, gliding effect of the force, yeah. as they call it. Um, it just leaps off the screen. This one, I, I praised Evil Dead 2 on our uh, last Halloween podcast you talked about the uh the beyond there and i was talking about um evil dead 2 and it, it's just one of those films when you're younger and you're a film student it's something you want to emulate because of the way the camera moves it just makes it so exciting i think this and the things that scorsese was doing with the camera were probably my two biggest influences as far as exciting camera movement in cinema and you know sam raimi's like a kid who's found his dad's shotgun here. He's just playing in the woods with it. And uh, it's just a terrific looking film um, still. Uh, And anyone who who knows about these things are going to know what an it's murder beam is or a fake shemp. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So to to the, to the uninitiated, you know, um, this is Sam Raimi's cult debut breakout feature. Um, And it's, you know, uh, I remember the day I got the Book of the Dead DVD edition, which was a, it smelled awful because it was made from, from very cheap rubber, but it looked, it looked like the Book of the Dead and, uh, etched, <laughs> bound in human flesh and inked in <laughs> human blood. But, um, I, I loved that edition and, and that really helped me get into filmmaking too. The, the two commentaries on there were particularly useful. Uh, this thing's got everything. It, it's like, I, I talked about Evil Dead 2 being akin to a, a cartoon in many ways it felt like the camera can go anywhere and do anything and uh you know that there's a shot from inside a a grandfather clock and so i'd never seen that done before um there's a tree rape sequence which is still startlingly effective and in spite of sam raimi having regrets about it, it it's become fairly iconic and i think it helps to define the film looking back um uh, it's not the classiest film in the, in the world, but uh, th- there's an inventiveness behind that camera that is just undeniable. I'm so glad that Sam Raimi went on to be 
to be successful with the with the Spider-Man films and uh, that was something that really clicked with me although I wasn't really particularly into them myself I'm I'm glad that he found a massive audience with those films um that sequence the tree rape sequence was inspired by I think it was Macbeth uh that there's a, a line about the woods coming to life and when uh Raimi was forced to study it at school he was fascinated by that um uh, what that could mean and then when it happened in in uh, Macbeth it, it was not a literal um incarnation of the woods coming to life so he thought oh well, I'm having that and he nicked off with it and uh, made one of the most bizarre terrifying um fairly misogynistic if if we're honest um, sequences but um it's hard hitting and uh when you think of the evil dead you kind of think of that scene that there's a lot of uh bizarre stuff you know a, a a deadite i guess there's still deadites at this point chewing off its own hand at the wrist uh the cabin is kind of alive so when you're inside it the camera is moving over the roof beams in one of my favorite shots and it kind of goes whoom, 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 as it passes like <laughs> it's as if it's alive and it's really making sounds it doesn't yeah. make much sense if you break it down but if you, if you apply that cartoon logic to it uh, you know, the, the way the shutters and doors open and close. It's a haunted house masterpiece. And, you know, when Bruce is battling them alone, that, that's like the entire third act of the movie, really. Um, it's all, it's, it's got a bunch of great stuff. Um, uh, and then at the very end, it has a terrific shot, um, which I believe is called a Samo cam or a Ramo cam. I can't remember oh, which okay, one. Yeah. Where the, we begin on a leaf and the camera, just takes off and kind of whooshes through the woods and uh, blasts through the the doors of the cabin and out the other side and right into uh, Bruce Campbell. And it's, it's probably my favorite closing shot of, of any film and not just horror, not just zombies. It's just uh, a, a terrific piece of cinema. So yeah, I, I would thoroughly recommend evil dead if you haven't seen it and uh, don't complain to me about them not being real zombies because you know, I, I think the quality of the film um, means that it that it deserves a place in in my fifteen anyway. And like we said, we're, we're not really um, if we're going to kind of go through the films that we've spoken about up until this point in terms of the uh, how um, the the zombify the zombification the zombifying yeah. process happens. Yes. Uh, you have uh, white zombie. You have the uh, the book or you have the the kind of a, a take on the traditional uh voodoo zombie in night of the living dead we don't know although mm. it is intimated that it may be space radiation is that uh yeah it's, it's night yes uh the living dead at the manchester morgue and shockwaves shockwaves was a nazi experiment um is there any explanation in manchester morgue yes yeah, it's, it's the uh the trying to kill the parasites on the farm so it's a okay. scientific endeavor that uh it, it's successful for the apple crop but everyone turns into murderous uh reanimated corpses so it's not great in the long run <laughs> no but you know nice apples yeah nice apples though uh dawn obviously continues uh uh night of the living dead uh zombie flesh eaters reverts back to a sort of take on um voodoo but probably mm. not in any way strictly at all um and then uh evil dead you have kind of a demonic possession from a uh an incantation a of a of a book yeah 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 so we've we've gone through we've gone through a lot of very different takes on the on the same 
thing here. And of course, like we say, this is a subgenre that was always kind of evolving and, and, and that its internal logics and its internal machinations maybe were never that well defined to begin with. So um, perhaps it could just be a case of uh, th- things which were living and are now dead, but are animated and like to munch on human flesh. Yeah. There's also something about, um, uh, the loss of self. Right. Um, and, uh, becoming drone, like, um, becoming kind of subservient to something and craving something, whether it's flesh or not. I think Mm -hmm. if we are strict, it has to be human flesh. If you're very strict, it has to be the flesh of the, of the living. Right. Yes. Um, but again, there's just so many levels to this, and uh, I, I think if 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 we you know went a bit to uh, <laughs> you know a Guinness Book of Records with it, um, what's he called, Norris McWhorter? If we if we went a bit like that, it, we we would be neglecting too many important films that 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 kind of fall yeah. fall under the umbrella of this. So um, fed yeah, into let, the visual imagery of it, and I think so. I think so. Yeah. So let's let's cast that net. A, a little bit wider than than we we probably otherwise would, but um, for, for uh, if we're going to get thirty one really diverse good good films here, I think it's necessary. Yeah, I'd have to agree. You you have to cast the net a bit wide, especially when it comes to what is probably considered. I don't know if it's is it the heyday of the zombie period. I don't know whether whether it I is. I think eighties. Um, but yeah. if you think of the the landmarks. The, there there's obviously night in the 60s and there's dawn in the 70s yeah that are a decade apart almost exactly yeah and then you know um yeah but i still think 80s when i think of zombies for some reason so we're getting into that now well so i've i've got quite a few picks coming up in quite a, a quick succession and i guess when we were trying to pick our uh, our top fifteen, and, and uh, we didn't really go by any strict rules in terms of what we were going to pick and what we were allowed to pick, it was very much up to the individual person as to mm. what was in and what wasn't. And I think it's probably telling that a, a large number of my picks are now going to be all smushed up in a very uh, uh, a very rapid fire burst across probably what, around four years, maybe. Um, and when you when we were talking about the Evil Dead and the fact that it's is it actually a film about demonic possession? Are they zombies? Um, Night of the Comet from nineteen eighty four, which is from uh, a director called uh, Tom Eberhard, I believe Eberhardt. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be one of the last people on Earth? We're talking ghost town. Who would you see? There's nobody. I mean, there's no. What would you do? Hey, I'm sorry if the end of the world makes me a little nervous. Where would you go? The stars are up ahead! Well, get ready to find out, because the comet is coming into your orbit. The legal drinking age is now 10, but you will need ID. Let's be real. It's the night of the comet. What do you give me if I come back? Texas. Who I didn't know much about. Um... He went on to direct, uh, write and direct Captain Ron. Oh, the, uh, Kurt Russell. Yeah. Um, uh, but from what I, from what research I did, I, I could see that, um, before he got into fiction filmmaking, he was a documentary maker, a documentarist, uh, with mm-hmm. PBS. 
which ah. loops us back to the PBS series that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would make a lot of documentaries about youth culture and young people. That was his interest. And um, it looked like the uh, the production company behind Night of the Comet uh, had a couple of uh, hits. Um, they had uh, Valley Girl. Mm-hmm. And they had Repo Man. Yeah. And I think they were intending to basically cash in on the success of these two with a with a very quick turnaround project that would be able to make some money in, in the short term. But what they got from uh, Tom Eberhardt was they had a director who I think managed to suffuse quite a lot of um, genuine energy and authenticity and, and like um, a real spirit into its mm. teenage characters, which a lot of the films in the era just didn't have. The The basic plot is that there is a comet passing by and it's the first time it's going to pass overhead. It's 65 million years, which is very telling. If anyone's ever seen the Jurassic Park poster, you'll know that that's a very uh, uh, significant time period to have passed because that was, as far as anyone can tell, the extinction level event which wiped out the dinosaurs. Uh, it is hinted that this comet uh, was the thing that, that done him in. Uh, and that is borne out by the fact that our protagonist, Reggie, uh, who is played by the magnificent Catherine Mary Stewart, um, yes. uh, is a, uh, a sort of slackerish team. Uh, she works at a cinema, kind of rundown cinema. Can and, I say that's uh, one of my favorite introductions to a character when she's on that uh, video game oh, and yeah. uh, the way the light's hitting her yeah. as she's playing the intensity of that i i love that um you, you sort of fall in love with her a bit in that in that moment yeah um and also the fact that you know that her other big big hit of the era the a year a year later or possibly even the same year of release was uh, the last starfighter mm. where yeah. she didn't get to play the computer game in that one um but uh yeah, she's uh um during the the comet, she's locked in the uh, projection room of the cinema with her skeevy boyfriend because right. they're waiting to bootleg some prints. And uh, mm-hmm. and when she leaves, she is confronted by oh the boyfriend leaves and he doesn't come back, and so she leaves the projection booth and she is confronted by what is clearly a zombie, uh, shambling, violent guy in an alley who wants mm-hmm. to do her harm and tries to bite her. Uh, and so she takes off on a moped and uh, she goes back to her house and she just keeps passing these piles of red dust. It's very um, Red Dwarf episode one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just clothes and red dusts. And uh, there's this beautiful red filter on all of the exterior shots and the skyline of what I love is the way they, so it's set in LA roughly. I don't know any specific districts in LA because I've never been, but what mm. I love is just how kind of, anonymous and uh uh just kind of any city la looks um but in- incredible that they managed to empty it out so much yeah it I, does have uh, that seems to be a trope too if you think about things like um the omega man yeah and then and then you jump to uh 28 days later yeah and uh 28 weeks later too and then mm. you know it, it happens it happens a lot doesn't it it's it's a great visual way of 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 depicting that um that post-apocalyptic yeah also a very cheap way presumably if you can get it closed or if you can find a place that that happens to be empty it's a very easy way to do it but i know for example a film like vanilla sky where they cleared out um times square was a very 
cost, you know, it's a very costly thing to do. Yes. I think a lot, a lot of these films took some shortcuts to, to get the they, same kind of imagery. Yeah, I think they get around it. Uh, certainly 28 Days Later, they just woke up really early, which is mm-hmm. which is great. Yeah. Yeah. I assume they did something similar here. And yeah. so uh, uh, Reggie kind of, the only other person she uh, she finds, which is uh, tremendously convenient, is her younger sister, who is... She's the cheerleader. Uh, she is. Uh, I, uh, criminally, I cannot remember her name. It's Kelly Maroney. Kelly Maroney. Yes, from from Chopping Mall, yes, which is a film I wanted to bring up as a bit of a comparison to this, which is that Chopping Mall is a very dumb but brilliant, silly cash-in film about a bunch yeah. of idiot teenagers getting sliced up by um, uh, mall secure, tubby mall security robots that destroy them. And also they uh, changed the title. Of, like The actors didn't agree to be in a film called Chopping Mall. <laughs> <laughs> Change the title later, and it's like it's called what? Yeah, what are we doing? Um, whereas this film has, uh, uh, despite its schlocky premise, which is the essentially two teenage girls are the last, uh, the last people left alive as far as they know, although they quickly meet a, uh, a trucker called Hector. Mm. And uh, um, and what we what we have is is uh, the the first zombie we meet tries to bite her, but then mm. later they don't meet zombies. They, they, they go to the mall because all these films after dawn, they go to the mall and, yeah. uh, uh, the mall, I think means something a little different in this film. Uh, I think it's seen as like a safe haven for them. Whereas Romero obviously had quite a negative uh, view of it. Uh, this one, the film doesn't really judge the girls for wanting to go to the mall and dress up. It's just a thing no. that they do. And, uh, there are some, some seriously whacked out stock boys, who are rapidly the idea is i think the comet is like dehydrating them <laughs> and then it turns them into these rage fueled uh 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 dicks <laughs> yeah so some people were just vaporized immediately into dust uh-huh. some people if they were shielded and this is something that we find out later because there is a yet again a scientific backdrop to this you have a secret research facility in the desert mm-hmm. and the fucking idiots left the vents open so oh, no. the thing that they were trying to shield themselves <laughs> from got them anyway but it's just killing them really slowly but they feel mm-hmm. they, they think that they can find survivors especially young survivors and they can harvest their blood okay um and uh so we 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 meet the scientific uh skeevy dudes who are trying to get the kids and they're trying to get them onto the research facility but um the the plot is kind of loopy but what i just love about it is just how it allows the two girls to just be themselves and it kind of revels in them and it never really judges them for being dumb and it doesn't really um Hmm. uh it it doesn't look down upon them but it also it kind of has some fun with the yeah. way they see things and the kind of the, the inherent narcissism of teenagers. Yeah. Uh, but they're really sweet natured kids and it's, um, it's, uh, it's an absolute blast and it kind of, it kicks off a bit of a period in the eighties whereby the zombies could be uh, again, extremely malleable in terms of what they are and what they represent. Yeah. And also malleable in the, as a subgenre, you can bolt that subgenre uh, onto other subgenres and you can start making these like hybrid films. Right. The Night of the Comet being like a kind of teeny bopper mm. kind of valley girlish comedy that's also a zombie end of the move uh, end of the world apocalypse narrative, which is right. which is kind of ace. Um I've watched mm. this one a lot. This is a real favorite. 
Uh, yeah, I've seen this a couple of times too. It's uh, it's it, it, and I think if you didn't pick this one, I would have I would have put that yeah. in there. I think it would have made my fifteen too. It's it's great. It's uh, it just it's it's oddly reassuring, right, to watch. Like yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of a treat. It, it, it's there's there has to be a, a few films that are going to offer some levity as well, and it, it's not entirely switch your brain off, but it's not um. It, it's not as morose and, and and morbid as some of the things on the list, and it's not as heavy hitting, but you know it's more of a laugh. So um, I think it deserves its place here, particularly with your next choice that's that's coming up. There, uh, they go quite well. Yeah, um, the next the next choice being uh, uh, the, the the following year. Oh, we should say uh, that uh, this could be a potential trilogy. The next three films. Okay, uh, I I found online. Uh, one of the drive-ins it could be the mahoning drive-in on instagram uh played them back to back as uh the dead are alive in 85 uh so the next three films are all from 1985 and uh, the first one is yours dev so it is i've gone with the um the infamous uh (laughs) which means more than famous um (laughs) (laughs) return of the living dead the military is nervous Crap. The police are confused. Send more cops. It worked in the movie. Well, it ain't working now. Bring the movie line. It's not a bad question, Bert. It's not a bad question, Bert. It's not a bad question, Bert. The return of the living dead. We mentioned on our very recent Alien episode that um, uh, I wanted to buff the the paintwork for uh, Dan O'Bannon a little um, because uh, Guyler and Hill were uh, a bit mean to him on that. <laughs> they, they they were, and um, uh, well, Guyler especially called uh, his script for Alien the worst thing he'd ever read. He said it was, uh, but they, you know. Uh, and I feel like what I loved about um, Dan O'Bannon's kind of creativity is that he came up with a bunch of stuff. And I think that uh, for Alien, it was a weird fit because Alien is very ended up being a very classy production. Mm. And I think maybe O'Bannon is a little happier to play around in the genre waters. And maybe his stuff doesn't have to be uh, uh, reputable. And if there's anything that you would describe Return of the Living Dead as, I don't think you would call it reputable. Despite the fact that I honestly think it is fucking fantastic, it's well. I you recommended this one on your Halloween list too, mm. and I I hadn't seen it, so I watched it on that recommendation and really enjoyed it. It was a a real, you know, you can do a kind of a beer and pizza thing with it, and it's yes, um, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, it it definitely falls in the category of of fun. It's usually called like the punk rock zombie movie, and I think that comes down to not just the aesthetic, although I do like the I like the fact that it's legitimately broken down and fucked up. It's not punk in yeah. the, um, it kind of, it has some fun and it pokes at the posturing, especially in the character of suicide mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. um, where he's grabbing his leather jacket. You think this is just fucking costume, <laughs> but right. he's a really strange character and yeah. I really like him. And I like that it's, it's like skeevy and broken down. And I think we've, between Night of the Comet and this, I think you have a real kind of flip side of the 80s, this idea of the 80s and, and, and America's image of itself as the corporate super 
men and mm-hmm. you know the the it's go go 80s and we're all going to be rich forever and uh, yeah. night of the comet you have like a, a pair of teen girls who just seem to not want to engage with it and that perhaps they're at the kind of they're not at the you know the the thick end of the wedge of of this mm. of this capitalism and in return of the living dead you have a flat out rejection of it you have this broken down city mm-hmm. um and uh uh we we open on our two um warehouse workers <laughs> uh who are just a, such a great double act um mm-hmm. but frank um the character of frank is just uh he's so great throughout the film he is just on the border of a cartoon while also having just such tremendous pathos this is the boss or this is the uh the the... this is the 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 warehouse worker this is the guy who's worker who is the boss by the way do you know that uh Uh, the the actor is clue gulager right and he's he's the father in uh a nightmare on elm street 2 and that's what i know him from and we, and we uh we make fun of him quite a lot for uh what's the line uh, me and sam hollis a mutual friend uh um always talk about his line you know what he did he used the goddamn cherry bomb <laughs> that's the the famous line from uh, freddy 2 that he that, that he delivers so so beautifully and he and he's off the wall in this he's he's terrific the boss yeah he's he's well, he he's called in to try and uh, uh cover up the fuck up that Frank and uh, Frank and Freddie is this guy. So he's, he's got a new, um, he's got a new coworker, one of the young punk kids. And he's, he seems mm-hmm. like a sweet kid and he's trying to show him the ropes and he clearly trying to show off. And he decides that, you know, he, he's, he's going to show off by showing him these barrels that they've had in the basement. Right. From the U S military. It's filled with a gas. And, and what is fascinating is that, so in this, uh, the, the, the background of the, the creation of the film is that um, the uh, co-writer uh, is his name John Russo, the original co-writer of um, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, I believe this is his name, John A. Russo. They, they collaborated here. Is that the deal? Uh, so Romero and Russo co-created Night of the Living Dead, and um, John Russo, after a gap of some almost twenty years, decided that he wanted to get back in the game, and he teamed up with a producer. I think he also produced this one. Mm-hmm. And they uh, and they hired Dan O'Bannon to write. They did give him outlines, um, but uh, it ended up in a legal acrimony. Uh, Russo and Romero sued each other because uh, your next pick, uh, the, the the release dates yes. are very close together, and um, Romero felt that Russo was was cashing in, cashing in on his on his work. Um, so they they there was a, a settlement, I believe, but. Um, uh, within this film, Night of the Living Dead is a film. It is a film within this film. They refer to referred it referred to by characters. Yeah, it's yeah. like that movie. But what is very strange is that the uh, the way Frank tells the story to Freddy about what really happened and that they had to change it all around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he tells him that there was a chemical spill in uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah, and that it's soaked into the soil, and that the and that it it's this trioxin is the name of the uh, the the chemical that they made. They were supposed to be using it to get the marijuana, which is also mm. a pretty pointed <laughs> little bit of um, yeah. uh, uh, political uh, uh, stuff about America's war on drugs. We're going to put the trioxin on the marijuana, <laughs> and it, but instead it soaked into the and it, and it raised the dead, it, re- it revived the dead, and. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says it happened in 1969, which I think is very, very unusual. That surely John Russo 
co-writer of Night of the Living Dead knows when his film came out. So yeah, uh, got the year one year off, right? They did, which is a very unusual that they would also specifically say that it happened after the release of the film Night of the Living yeah. Dead. Yeah, well, that that's one of the bingo squares here. It's uh, breaking the law, I've called right. it, and uh, there's a lot of stuff in this one um, where they do detach from from that original. Yes. Uh, and the original rules that have been established. There's, there's one very famous scene where a, uh, a zombie speaks into a police radio and says, send more cops. Yeah. So that they can devour more of them. But, um, yeah. yeah, there's, there's a few other instances where it breaks free from it. I would say straight, straight from the, uh, from the off what we get. So we get the trioxin, of course, is released. As is the infamous tar man, who is just such a fucking brilliant oh, creation. That, I mean, you mentioned Bub. But, mm. you know, Bub is more of a, a human, an actor portrayal of a zombie. But the Tarman is um, totally iconic. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm still not entirely sure how it was uh, achieved. It's so good. Um, the, the specifics, I don't know. I do know that he was um, within, he was performed by a guy called Alan Troutman, who was one yeah. of um, the Henson Company guys so I mean, he was a puppeteer right. which obviously but the face is completely uh i guess animatronic or or uh, puppeteered somehow but with a human tongue <laughs> right yeah it's it's so good it is um and but the, the trioxin obviously you, you've now gassed uh frank and freddie and they are succumbing but yes. what that's also done is that it's reanimated everything in this warehouse including <laughs> Um, a board full of butterflies, which is such an incredible little detail that they put yeah. in. Yeah. And of course, <laughs> uh, some uh, uh, bisected dogs with perspective yeah. lining. And uh, Frank's reaction to that dog being alive is the funniest thing I've seen. Yeah. Yep. He just cannot process it. But the first <laughs> thing he decides to do is to smack it with, <laughs> with yeah. a wooden crutch. Um, <laughs> And then the, uh, the the corpse in the fridge has reanimated and they let him out mm. and immediately are breaking the law because they know that um, this is when uh, the, the boss, Clue Gulliger, shows up. Uh, yeah. uh, Bert is his character name. Bert, and, um, that's right. In that movie, you, you do you do in its head. You, you destroy its head and then it's done. So they managed to hold <laughs> this. The, the zombie is just a guy painted yellow. It's very strange. It's just a bald yeah. guy painted. He looks like the um, the happy slapper from the old uh, Tango adverts. Yeah, he does. He does. Uh, I assume that's where they got that from. And he yeah. comes bursting well, who, out. Who wouldn't use that to sell their uh, soft drink? Exactly. How disturbing. <laughs> he comes bursting out of this thing completely naked. Mm-hmm. running around makes a beeline for Bert they manage to hold him down and Bert drives a fucking pickaxe through the back of his head <laughs> and all that happens is that it nails his head to the floor and yeah. he just continues screaming horribly right right and uh, they dismember him and his dismembered parts continue so what what the uh, the return of the living dead zombies are that every single part of them is reanimated and any part of them can remain alive no matter how small you smash them up right uh, so that's Which again where, strays from strays from the rules doesn't it yeah straight away we've so we've um and, and from there we have uh frank and freddie succumbing very slow so they are the the, the slow turners uh mm-hmm. you have freddie's uh friends who are the the punk kids who decide we're just going to go party in the cemetery and that yeah it's such a great ragtag bunch of b characters including most iconically of course linnea quigley yeah, that's that's an unforgettable scene. It is. 
Um, and it's all just, but, but what's, what's fantastic is that in amongst all this, everything's just so fever pitched. It's all pitched way, way, way up. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, Frank, uh, yeah, I, I keep going on about Frank, but Frank is fantastic in this. James Karen, James Karen is is the actor, and he just he's the real core of it. Yeah. Um. His uh his his death scene spoilers. I don't want to go into how he does it, but that's genuinely quite moving, <laughs> while also being a bit funny and also insane. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, a top pick. I, I, this one, this one had to be in there again. If if you hadn't picked it, it would have been in mine definitely. It's it's, it's, the, it's something it's, I, I saw very recently, and uh, mm. it, it really really clicked with me. So I I definitely recommend this one too. It's the first time a zombie wants to eat brains, and that right. was very surprising. And also a, a film in which a zombie, which is a, a an incredible animatronic of a woman with a half a spine just fishing around like a little tail, right. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to put um, eating brains as a, as one of the bingo mm. squares, but it actually happens very rarely. Yeah, in, in these films, this is one of the the instances where that that idea was born out of. I guess. I mean, yeah. there's not too much specific brain eating before this one. I don't think. No, no, and you have a zombie character strapped to a gurney telling you why they want to eat brains. Yeah, again, strangely, strangely, somewhere between funny and moving and bizarre, and uh, it, it ticks a lot of boxes. This one, yeah, so, um, it, it was a, it was a definite. It had to be in there, um, mm. and uh, uh, I think it really holds up. But um, as we mentioned, this this had legal controversy because uh, the the grandfather of the of the genre. Although yep. he wasn't that old at this point, um, was was coming back, and uh, this was your next pick. Yeah, if if we're looking at this as like a little "The Dead Are Alive" in '85 trilogy, this is uh, this would be part two. Um, Romero's "Day of the Dead" from 1985. First came the night, then came the dawn. Now comes the most eagerly awaited day in horror film history. George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. We've been punished by the creator. He visited a press. Hello! Is anyone there? For the few remaining, their only hope of survival is to find a cure. You're wasting time trying to define what's happening. But the odds are against them. We're in the minority now. Something like 400,000 to one by my calculations. Um, I'm going to go as far as to say it's my absolute favorite zombie film of all time. It's my go-to choice. It was the first thing I wrote down, first thing I put in the list. And uh, I, I think first you, you see the tropical zombie in a Hawaiian shirt, and then you yeah. see the weed the weed crop, and it's like, okay, George, I know, I know what you're doing. And you kind of settle into it, and it's... It's so brilliant. It's just, it's incredibly dark. Um, you know, it's, it's theatrical and beautifully designed, but it's fun too. Um, it, it's not the same tone as, um, Return of the Living Dead by any means, but, um, and, and it's also, you, most people would argue darker than, than Dawn, although there, there is some dark things in it. There's no custard pies in uh, Day of the Dead. They wouldn't quite fit into this one. Uh, but the tone of it is is exactly what I look for, um, and I love the '80s era of zombie films. Uh, it's it's got everything except that clever allegory. I you can 
you can look for it and you might find something but there's nothing quite like the the racial aspect of the of his original and then the consumerist skewering of of the sequel um by this point you know it's it's about claustrophobic tension and and everyone is underground and this zombie apocalypse is taking over uh, this is what i mentioned earlier is tom savini's masterpiece i think he he's really leading heading up the the efx for this one and you've got i know you've got burger and uh, nicotero because nicotero's in it as well um but so the beginnings of the knb company uh, that we discussed a lot on the From Dust Till Dawn pod, and and they kind of took over as the the greatest uh, effects house in the world, and and now of course Nicotero is instrumental in The Walking Dead, and uh, and he's one of the reasons that show has become what it is, or what it was, depending how you look at it. Um, but I'd, I'd yeah I'd confidently say this was Savini's masterpiece. That the 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 throat tears and the there's one there's captain Rhodes who's incredible uh joe pilato uh his death is just incredible uh spoiler and uh there's a guy a guy gets his head pulled off while he's <laughs> screaming and as as the head is coming off and his vocal cords are tearing that the pitch of his scream alters and gets higher yeah. and it, it is just phenomenal i i've you know, never seen anything like it what's odd about that is that in the in the 85 uh era you have a similar thing with the, the yellow zombie mm. with his head pickaxe to the ground yeah um clue Gulliger decides the best thing to do is to take his head <laughs> off with the fucking hacksaw and you right. hear hacksaw serrating his uh his vocal cords while he's screaming so yeah that is they're, they're definitely conscious of each other i, I don't know yeah. how they if they would have how much they would have seen of each other but there's a there's a competition going on whether it's friendly or not um Captain Rhodes screaming, you puss fuck, over and over, <laughs> as, as he's torn to pieces and, and telling the zombies to choke on his, his legs or his intestines or whatever they've taken off him. Um, a little bit of trivia, the, the strong female lead here, Laurie Cardiel, is the daughter of Bill Chilly Billy Cardiel, who was uh, a newscaster that acted in George's original Night of the Living Dead. Oh, so there's a, there's a bit of a tie in there. But th- this one's got it all for me. Um, it's uh, it just just nails the tone beautifully. I know you're a fan of this one too. We talked about your your art of of, of Bub earlier when you met um when you met Romero. I know Romero always says um that this is his favorite of his films. I've heard him say that anyway. I don't know if he. I, I know I know he goes on about survival, saying that people are going to appreciate survival of the dead one day. Right. That's going to be the one that people are going to get later. But I I know he he really likes Day. And when people go up to him and say, oh, Day is my favorite, he knows that they're a maniac because it's <laughs> yeah. like the darkest one. So, but yeah, how, how do you feel about Day? Um, yeah, absolutely. Honestly, absolutely in agreement. I think it's the, um, I guess it's the most coherent tonally as well. Um, mm. we, we talked about how maybe Night is pretty coherent tonally, but it's it's also extremely stripped back. Uh, Dawn is the kind of Technicolor splatter, uh, yeah. throwing things at the wall, and and is extremely long. And and Day of the Dead is yeah, it's 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 a grim march, but it's a grim march studded with like you say, dark dark humor. Um, mm. 
uh, I can understand massive why performances, huge, yes. just huge theatrical performances. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand why it was rejected by a lot of audiences and 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 certainly by a lot of critics because that is a relentlessly grim tone and it is pitched up quite and and when compared to something like Return of the Living Dead, it has such a completely night and day contrast as far as um mm. uh, what they're doing, even if they're both you know violent and uh, and 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 apocalyptic. I guess that's um one thing about return of the living dead is that that it shares is a, a disdain for the military complex and military yeah uh, um the i guess increasing militarization maybe that's that's where you'd find your allegory if, if you if you're looking yeah. for it i think and the uh the the way that the military will just stomp all over science <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah oh yeah definitely um there's the frankenstein uh character there that there's the, the quote my favorite quote is uh I'm running this monkey farm now, Frankenstein, and I want to know what the fuck you're doing with my time. <laughs> that's, that's the standout line that I always remember. That's fantastic. And the delivery of it is so kind of virulent. He's <laughs> just yeah. such an angry man, Rhodes. It's <laughs> great. Um, yeah, Dawn, uh, uh, Day of the Dead for me is, is, is that's my, uh, that's my top Romero pick. And, and it would go very high in my list of all time zombie films, although, um, I actually think that my next pick. Ah, oh, that could spot. be the top. Okay, so this is the the third in the uh, eighty five trilogy. It is. It's uh, Stuart Gordon's nineteen eighty five film Reanimator, which is not just. I think it is. I think it is hands down my favorite zombie film. I think it's also mm. one of my favorite films ever made by anyone in any genre. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such dribble? These people are here to learn and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What are He's you? brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the 6 to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. <laughs> but lately they're getting out of hands. <laughs> He's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. What are you thinking? How do you feel? You? 15 cc's of reagent being administered. Once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. dead not anymore herbert west brought a lot of dead people back to life and not one of them showed any appreciation hp lovecraft's classic tale of horror reanimator Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. It will scare you to pieces. It's it's difficult to say too many good things about it for me. <laughs> I um uh Stuart Gordon is a fascinating case of a of a creative. Um 
I guess it's interesting to see how all these different filmmakers came into filmmaking at uh, different times and through different methods. George Romero was a, uh, he was an industrial filmmaker, I believe, right? Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, commercials and uh, yeah, the, the, it was all kind of born out of, out of that. They had the equipment and, and they kind of fell into that, that independent filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, and you have um, uh, Dan O'Bannon, who we talked about, who was a, he was a film school kid. He was a, a, a contemporary of John Carpenter. So um, yeah, Dark Star that we talked about on the Alien pod. Uh, whereas uh, Stuart Gordon... Uh, came uh, a little later. He wasn't. Um, he wasn't like a, a into filmmaking when he was young. He's from the experimental theater scene, and he would. Wow. Uh, him and his wife had a, a theater company that was uh, targeted for obscenity charges multiple times for starting <laughs> very strange happenings and stuff. And mm. but he got hooked up with Charles Band, who was a kind of a legend of the exploitation game. Is um, a real acolyte of uh, of Roger Corman and a. a I kind of, uh, I, I think they they definitely had a um, a friendly competition going between them. Yeah. Who could who could turn out the cheapest? <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's a level of artistry in what Stuart Gordon does that I just don't think is existing in a lot of other films of that same. Certainly not in the you know, and guys like Albert Pyun and and a guy we'll talk about later, producer on this, Brian Usner. They have, um, they're, they're again, really interesting ideas, guys, but um, some s- lacking in some execution, I think, whereas there's just something about the way that Stuart Gordon put this one together that's just, it's it's extraordinary. It's, um, mm. it's sometimes lumped in with the likes of Evil Dead and especially Evil Dead 2. Yeah. And I don't think it's going for the same thing, despite the fact that they are both kind of mordantly funny and violent at the same time. I think it's got a lot more kind of a, a, a slightly reserved. Uh, uh, it, it certainly doesn't pitch up to cartoon logic, even as it is going absolutely crazy in yeah. certain sequences. Um, it's uh, inspired by massive air quotes again, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Um, but uh, what's great is that we have a very clean narrative, a very clean idea of where the zombies come from, how they work. And then what happens? It's uh, uh, similar to Return of the Living Dead. So that's why I guess it makes sense that they would be lumped together. You have a chemical mm. formula, a chemical compound, which can revive the dead. Uh, yeah. in most famously, to start with, a dead cat. <laughs> right. Cat dead, details later. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, we have an arrogant and brilliant young scientist played by Jeffrey Combs. We have uh, uh, Dr. Herbert West, and he is kicked out of an institution for his uh, his meddling in the um in the macabre and uh he transfers to uh it's miskatonic institute miskatonic yeah miskatonic okay um there's a a horror society called the miskatonic institute of horror studies which is why i should have known i've I've been to a couple of their talks they're kind of a a a very cool uh, organization that i would suggest checking out if you're into horror films but um uh we have uh uh, dr hill is, Mm -hmm. is the antagonist uh, of of the piece to Herbert West and Herbert has a uh, he moves into the uh, apartment of a fellow student a kind of a, a bit of an everyman character mm-hmm. uh, and his uh, and his lovely girlfriend played by the extraordinary genre icon Barbara Crampton uh, who before and after this was a soap star which I thought was kind of cool. She yeah. had a she had a great run in uh, in Stuart Gordon films this and also From Beyond, 
and then she went back to to soaps and uh uh if anyone follows her on twitter you'll see that she seems to have a lovely time <laughs> and she's had a real like genre resurgence post um being cast in your next uh she's kind of gone on to a a great kind of second career in, in horror but um that's good uh what i what i love about this film aside from everything is um it's it's very clean in the way it lays out what it wants to do even as it goes crazy so you see that um uh the the escalating series of terrible choices made by uh herbert Mm -hmm. west and dan as his unwitting and unwilling but he still goes along with everything that herbert wants to do so they uh they revive the um uh, the dean of the university, and he becomes ah. a shambling zombie. Uh, it's also uh, uh, the, the father of Barbara Crampton's character, so mm-hmm. uh, Dan's prospective father-in-law. <laughs> he ends up dead and revived. Yeah. Uh, there is the infamous uh, Doctor Hill's disembodied head enforced yeah. uh, cunnilingus sequence, which um, is not a sentence that you ever think that you know. Say. <laughs> No. And, and originally it went further, but they, they stopped it at what most people felt was the right, the right point. I think it's, it's I bizarre think enough, isn't uh, it? you know, Stuart Gordon liked to push some boundaries. And I think at some point, yes, possibly, uh, somebody may have stepped in and said, I think you've made your point <laughs> here. <laughs> and I'm not sure. I think you need to stop this before, like when it, when it tips over into just being, uh, extremely unpleasant, but, um, mm. It's a it's a fantastic film with a couple of sequels. Uh, Bride of Reanimator was on my list for a while. Again, this is producer Brian Usner's um, uh, follow up, and I think is just illustrative of the. It has a bit of sequelitis because it's much bigger and madder. Again, Doctor Hill gets bat wings and he can fly around. <laughs> it's just his okay. edge. Uh, I've never seen the second one, so yeah, that, that's interesting. It's, it's it's really interesting. It's it suffers a little from. Um, uh, typically Usner-esque uh, incoherence in the scripting mm. kind of meanders a little. It takes some great pains to explain away some stuff that you would have hoped that they wouldn't have to explain away. Yeah. Uh, the introduction of a new character, for example, is, is quite clumsily inserted, uh, but it is, it has a kind of mad energy to it and a real, like it is very authentic in its way, but um, mm. uh, it, it's also a case in point where when you see two directors tackling a very similar thing and you can just see the intangibles of how there are certain filmmakers who can just get things across on screen in a way which is just extremely compelling and iconic and others where you can actually see them laboring to get to the same points a little. Right. Um, I see. So uh, uh, to me, this is just, this is um, it's, it's an almost perfect eighties horror film which yeah. considering how highly I regard that as a, as a specific era in a specific genre. It, well, the the Jeffrey Combs thing is interesting. Cause I, I think there's some connection between this and uh, uh, brain dead. Right. Which might yeah. Pop up in a little while. Um, and because Peter Jackson um, uh, used him in, uh, I want to say the frighteners. He did. Yes. Yeah. He was a, uh, um, he was the kind of strange kind of, uh, uh, is he like the ghost hunter? Yeah. yeah. He's, a, he's very, um, a very sinister character. He's very good at playing very sinister. Right. Well, that was one of the first times I'd seen, I saw that before I saw reanimator. So that right. was a kind of a, a reference back for me. And, uh, yeah, that there's a, it, they're not completely, you know, tied by any means, but, uh, I, I think you could lump this in with some of the films that, that inspired 
Peter Jackson with some of his earlier work. Well, I guess uh, uh, while we're sticking with the mid eighties, yeah. um, one the, year the, on eighty six. The next one that I picked is uh, again we're in a kind of teen comedy zombie mashup, mm-hmm. kind of in the same. We're, we're paddling around in similar ish waters to something like Night of the Comet, with one of your favorite actors. Tom fucking Atkins. Uh, we said before that George Romero was the first time I'd ever paid somebody to get their autograph. The yeah. second and only other time I've paid for an autograph. <laughs> How do you do it, by the way? Like, do you, do so you, you fork just, the money directly to him? That's a bit. Yeah, you legit. You do. I, I think so. Or do, or do you like maybe buy like a little ticket? I can't remember now. Uh, I think somebody takes it. I don't think you yeah. hand them the money. I think yeah, you buy like a little, oh, you buy a little pass. That's it. You buy a little, like a little piece of paper. And I see. if it's, if it's like a big f- famous person who needs to have slots because mm-hmm. otherwise they'll get their table crowded, then you have to buy. And it's like, oh, you have to go between this time and this time. Tom yeah. Atkins table was not especially busy when I went to visit. Did, did you have a chat with Tom? I had a lovely chat with Tom. I was wearing a silver shamrock t-shirt because, uh, I think my love <laughs> Halloween three season of the witch is, been belabored and beaten to death by now but i love it so very much i love it like Mm -hmm. a firstborn and uh i went and and i I asked him to to sign a little photograph of him and with all the masks and he saw the t-shirt and he was like i love that shirt and he started singing the jingle he started no way and he (laughs) wanted to chat away about like the making of the film stuff he almost felt like he just launched into it the guy's a born raconteur there is a fantastic um uh uh extra i should probably mentioned that so he plays a a a a depressed potentially suicidal extremely hard-boiled gumshoe detective (laughs) yeah in night of the creeps the night of the fall is finally here for chris cindy and jc it's going to be the best night of their lives but tonight is also the night of the creeps. From a world unknown comes a nightmare unimagined. First, they are under you, around you, on you, then inside you. They get into your mouth and you walk around while they incubate, even if you're dead. And he has fantastic, uh, uh, um, catchphrase when he walks into a crime scene thrill me <laughs> <laughs> thrill me and he's got the uh, Columbo jacket and uh, he does it's 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 um and he has a uh uh an extra on the night of the creeps um the fantastic eureka blu-ray of night of the mm-hmm. creeps it's just a 40 odd minute conversation just a rambling chat of tom in his house just next to a lovely lamp and he's having a cracking time he just loves telling these stories i think this is just a guy who felt very blessed to have a career in 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 these films between this and the fog and you know mm-hmm. just, just a studied little highlights throughout his career where these are the films that it's it's bizarre it must be bizarre to think that 30 something almost 40 years later that you would still have people rocking up to a trestle table in fucking yeah. Earl's Court asking you to sign a photograph from from this film just because people <laughs> love it and and they don't know what to do with their love of this film. So it's like, I guess I'll just give Tom Atkins fifteen pounds to write his name down. <laughs> like right, that's, right. Uh, but uh, night and I, like, I like that he just went straight into it and it was he wasn't um, you know bitter about any anything like that. No, I mean, he's happy probably. to sit at that table and talk to you about it. That's lovely. 
that's just that's a, a lovely trip you would have thought like um yeah some yeah great dude and uh night of the creeps is is um it's i wouldn't put it in the top tier of this kind no. of era it's a little it's a little below some of the other ones we've been talking about i don't think it has the um all of the atmosphere of night of the comet it doesn't have the charm maybe mm. it's very it is charming but um it has a strange thing in the lead character is a dick like he's a total beta male yeah. jerk off who's awful like a total misogynist weirdo yeah. uh but he does get the girl i guess that is very telling of its era uh mm-hmm. very um uh revenge of the nerds yes i think that's bled into the dna of this film as well but um but there's a lot of fun to be had with it. Um, it's another zombie film that has a specific um, cause. It's uh, parasitic brainworms from space. Of course, yeah, of course. It that is. old chestnut. <laughs> Does this one uh, stray from uh, the law, generally speaking, or or is it uh, fairly locked in? How do you kill these things? Uh, I believe you 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 uh, they set fire to them. There's a lot of. Um, uh, yep. Uh, flame throwing yeah uh, i i think that no that is how you kill them yeah you have to um you have to burn up the brain worms so um, i guess in that sense we're um we are straying again well they, the, i have afraid of uh fire square here that okay. fire has been right from from night there's uh they've exhibited a fear of a fear of fire and, and they do burn the bodies on a on a big bonfire yeah. Um uh, I can't remember how much is from the remake and how much is from the original but there's there's a lot of that kind of lynching imagery and then b- the burning of right. bodies and things like that. So the fire has always been inherently kind of tied to it. So I I would count that as been within. Okay. It's uh, if if it passes then it passes and yeah. it's it's clearly zombie-ish. It's you know your friends, neighbors, classmates, bullies, awful frat guys who are just trying to harsh your good time yeah. they they uh they catch on they get the worm and then they get mm. zombied and they yeah. and they start to attack there's some there's some really fun sequences in it it's a very yeah. fun film it's a really easy watch if i mean obviously it's albeit very squelchy <laughs> yeah but, um, yeah well that's a given at this point with these these things i think but yeah it definitely it felt like it was uh it felt like it was necessary to just kind of i i like it a lot and i find it very fun uh mm-hmm. and i do feel like in in terms of like uh illustrating the the breadth of the the genre that we that we ended up in in the 80s the fact that you can have these different takes and in, within one two year spans you've got a bunch yeah. of filmmakers kind of just taking the, the the basic idea of the shambling hordes yeah and making a whole bunch of different stuff out of it. Well, that's, that's what's fascinating. The applicability of, of it really, um, how how it can be applied to anything. And, and again, you can apply your own meaning or that the author can imply meaning. And it it seems like whatever you do with it, it can, it can be read into, which is really interesting for me. Yeah. But so, yeah, that was uh, one year later. So that was 86. Uh, it's your choice again, 1988. Uh, it is. I've got. Uh, I've got a double from '88. I'm gonna. Um, oh, cool. I'm not gonna uh, uh, dwell too much on this one, largely because I have only seen it once, and it was a very long time ago. But I felt like it needed to go in the list. But I'm yeah not as familiar with it as I maybe wish I was when we wanted mm-hmm. to discuss it. The reason it came up is that for one thing, it's directed by Wes Craven, um, yeah. and 
anytime uh you know one of the big icons of the genre decides to kind of tackle the zombie i feel like it's it's worth uh bringing up and the other is that it was an explicit attempt to uh to reconnect the zombie to its haitian voodoo roots right. and again it did so via the medium of a massive quotes again ostensibly non-fiction book ah, okay. uh, which is by a uh, uh, a few um, uh, Harvard scholars, I think a Harvard scholar went on a research mission uh, to uh, to Haiti and uh, Mm. he came back with this book and it was adapted um, by Wes Craven uh, into The Serpent and the Rainbow. From Wes Craven, director of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Comes a story of the forbidden world between life and death. There's a door to the mystical. And you just walk through it. Somebody brought him back from the grave. And I want to know how they did it. Death is not the end. I'll take your soul. You think you can take these people's secrets and just walk away? In the shadows of the imagination lies the ultimate nightmare. Don't let them bury me. I'm not dead. The Serpent and the Rainbow. The film, from what I can recall, is that Wes Craven didn't really want to make another horror film. He wanted to make a more of a kind of very tense, kind of, I guess, supernatural thriller, mm. which is also probably in keeping with the the way the genre was going in the 80s. I think maybe uh, the cycle for the, you know, the, the splattery fun kind of stuff was tailing off, tapering off, and you were starting to get more into horror possibly trying to go into more respectable avenues yeah um, it does still feature bill pullman get his uh getting a nail pierced through his scrotum though so oh i'm in that's, that's it put that in the trailer uh, yeah um he plays an academic who gets caught up in a uh in a labyrinthine plot regarding um voodoo and and uh, trying to get hold of the the powder the tincture that is used to um by the book or to to enslave uh whomever they want to zombify and then there's you know people having their souls taken and put in jars and it's uh <laughs> there's a lot of nightmarish imagery and stuff and um again uh, so probably a film that uh is worth putting in the list certainly worth putting in the in the in the month's rewatch because i think it has a um it has a very different take and it's very interesting that yeah. so it, it took so long for them to make another film that actively engaged with the, uh, the, the, the practices of voodoo. However, I, I couldn't, um, I, I can tell you how accurate it is or how sensitively it was treated. Well, there's always a, 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 there's an urge to return to where it all began. I think when people look at these genres so it could just be that they're they're attempting to return to the roots of things and and not bypass um 
again i haven't seen this one so i'm not sure how much they they bypass night of the living dead and and the, and the romero rules of things but um it's, it sounds to me like they're, they're trying to return to to the core of where the idea originally came from yeah i i think very that's that was what he wanted to do and i guess he just wanted to make an interesting film it, it seems that wes craven was pushed to put more nightmarish horror imagery in there he himself didn't mm. want to go back down ground but he's a horror guy right they're going to push him they they yeah. did um yeah. But uh, an interesting film and certainly one that when it gets around to uh, what date are we going to be watching this? We're going to be watching this on the 13th of May. I think that I will be uh, along with our, hopefully our audience, I will be watching on on that date. <laughs> it, would, it would be one that I would like to revisit. Yeah, um, me too. Uh, and... <laughs> Unlike 1985, I don't believe that there's much in the way of um, thematic coherence between The Serpent and the Rainbow <laughs> and 1988's Dead Heat. There's definitely something very weird going on here. Detective Roger Mortis <laughs> has a problem. He's dead. But Detective Bigelow is bringing him back alive. That's okay. Don't get up. Told you not to get up. Now, he's got 12 hours to solve the toughest murder case of his career. His own. That's it from now on. I'm a vegetarian. How do you fight this thing? Maybe we could drown it in A1 sauce. Treat Williams. And Joe Piscopo are dead heat. You can't keep a good cop dead. Oh yeah, this is going to be a Friday night as well, so that's that's a great pick for a Friday night. That is perfect. Uh, dead Heat is a um, a zombie comedy buddy cop movie. Yeah, uh, and it is not seeking to subvert these things it's not seeking to undercut any of your expectations it is reveling in the stupidity and the ridiculousness of all of these genres again this is like um what i love about these kind of films is that there's always an element of exploitation that mm. when you're rolling around in the in the muck down there just trying to make some cash mm. and what that means is that you are willing to magpie influences from wherever and you're willing to just pluck something from here so i would imagine at this point beverly hills cop was one of the biggest films uh 1988 i don't know whether that means that both of the first two had been out by then beverly hills cop 2 is 87 so yeah that's already so i mean and that was an even bigger hit than the first so uh yeah. i think the the mismatched uh uh cops genre was 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 well underway and uh we have joe piscopo <laughs> of course and uh some other guy i <laughs> <laughs> uh it's it's joe piscopo and uh treat williams jesus yeah. look at me just like disregarding the life and career of treat williams who the fuck am i to tell Which is treat the one that looks like lou reed uh that is joe piscopo oh that's joe piscopo okay um and uh treat williams plays a uh plays a cop whose name is roger mortis <laughs> <laughs> and he ends up dead and he gets yeah. revived by a zombie machine it's again it's a scientific experiment gone wrong uh science is bad that should have been a square but i, th I think i'm gonna put science is bad on my hammer horror 
bingo Fair. instead. So I think that's yeah. I'd be better off on that one. I guess this is so widespread. It's it's the the, the roots tend to be uh, voodoo curse, science, mm-hmm. or uh, I guess there are some of them where they just oh uh, some of them are just kind of like natural phenomena and viral later on. Like a bit, a bit yeah. Later. Um, yeah. So he's he's revived and uh, he's a zombie cop, uh, but he's you know. Uh, and him and his buddy, they they trade uh, little witticisms and jabs as they try and uncover the grand mystery as to you know to get to this guy. Um, he's, he's called Louder Milk, is the, yeah. the antagonist, which just makes me think of um, Bobcat Goldthwait in Scrooged. Elliot Louder Milk is out of here, uh, but he is played in this film by Vincent Price, a very elderly but surprisingly game. Vincent Price. Yeah, I've seen that the cast here is very interesting. Key Luke from uh, Gremlins fame. Mm. Uh, you've got Robert Picardo, who's a Joe Dante regular. Yeah, as well. you see, um, you see Vincent Price appear on a screen early mm. in the film as a kind of a piece of video footage. And and when I've watched this, I've only watched this once. I watched it uh, actually over the last year. Um, the Rewind Movie Podcast and largely our. Uh, our esteemed figurehead galley thought it would yeah. be a great idea to have um uh amazon prime watch alongs on a thursday night we would pick mm-hmm. a film and we'd all log on online and we'd uh, we'd chat away through uh films which are kind of infamously quite poor or well, I, I unfortunately miss out on all of this because of my my the time difference between you and yeah. career is so so great that uh i i can't join in on them but they sound great it's kind of brutal so we had a we had a tendency to go for films which were bad, but then we would start going for films which were so bad they were good. Then yeah. they were. Then we would just start watching films which are great but trash, like mm-hmm. like. So we watched some stuff that was uh, uh, awful but very entertaining, like Demon Wind and some of your classics, like Samurai mm-hmm. Cup. But uh, yeah. one day it was suggested that we watch Dead Heat, and it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect for that. It has some second act plot spaghetti where it really gets wrapped up in itself, which is the times when you can just sort of have a little bit of a chat and have a drink and whatever. Yeah. And it, it, it goes absolutely crazy for the finale, which is what you want. It builds to a real crescendo. And and Vincent Price appears on screen, actually on screen, which is great because I was a little convinced that, you know, when you have these kind of like old legends turning up in a film, it's like, oh, okay. So I've seen him on a video on a screen on a video for four minutes at the start. That's all I'm getting, right? But as a now he turns up and he's in a room and it blows up and shit. It's fun. Uh it's it's a it's a daft laugh of of the very of a very good uh sort. Um which makes for a very harsh contrast with nineteen eighty nine's Pet Cemetery, which is my next pick. this place i brought you here to bury alan's cat daddy is church all right why judge i have no reasons i dreamed he got hit by a car and you and mr crandall buried him in the pet cemetery what did we do tonight judge what we did Lois, was a secret may the lord bless you and keep you has anyone ever buried a person up there may the lord make his face to shine upon you you're thinking thoughts that's not thought of daddy's gonna do something really bad you're thinking of putting him up there don't deny the thought hadn't crossed your mind come back to me gage come back to us (laughs) 
presents Stephen King's all-time best-selling tale of horror. Pet Cemetery. A, uh, a brutal uh, uh, evocation of um, grief, and specifically the grief of the loss of a child. A very memorable scene with with the the kid and the truck and yeah ha- haunting stuff. A lot of people this this is their nightmare fuel. They always uh, this one in Salem's Lot they kind of hark back to, don't they? In terms yeah. of like the, the the imagery really sticking with them and lingering. It's um it's got a lot to it's got a lot going for it atmospherically. Um, it's it's uh, I think it's really well paced. Uh, it's mm. not in a rush. There's some nice character interactions, like um, like like some really kind of some really good work, like really kind of deep. Uh, uh, again, it's it's um, it's showing the better the better impulses of Stephen King. I think it's uh, mm. um, are you as familiar with with Pet Cemetery and 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 its sequel, of course, Pet Cemetery too. I'm not. Uh, Pet Cemetery. I've seen once. Uh, the sequel, I haven't. I haven't seen. Um, weirdly, when I was a kid, it was Pet Cemetery Two that we watched a lot, which is a thing that comes up so frequently on this podcast. Does that kind of just follow suit as far as the the, the premise? It's a lo- it's a lot trashier, and yeah. it's uh, Eddie Furlong features prominently, and I think mm. they wanted to cash in on a on a whole different audience there, and and um yeah unfortunately so uh pet cemetery um features only one human zombie is that correct i think that would be right and a cat <laughs> only one human i think you're right yeah one human one yeah. cat but uh uh the roots of this one are that there is a non-specific as far as i'm aware non-specific patch of kind of haunted earth i yeah. think i might be i might be miss like uh misremembering and, and combining it with poltergeist in my head that i ah i'll keep you right there because i've seen that one quite a bit I, 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 I was just i i couldn't tell you whether or not poltergeist the, is purely just a, a suburban um, yes uh, uh, houses that were built on an ancient indian burial ground but yeah. uh pet cemeteries is more just a a piece of land isn't it that they take it is so i i was i think in my head i'd sort of confused it and said that the reason why they come back is because of you know um non-specific native american Mm -hmm. uh uh, (laughs) yeah chicanery but i don't yeah i think it is just a that yeah there is a patch of earth whereby if you bury the um bury a, a, a pet uh it comes back to life but it comes back to life as a little arsehole now, one could argue, could you really tell the difference between a cat and a zombified cat that comes back as even more of a brick? But yeah. not point. me, of course. That is not the kind of controversial statement that I myself would make. Mm. Um, but what happens is, of course, they inevitably, they ignore the warning signs and they succumb to their grief and uh, the, the, the father buries his child, Gage, and uh, he comes back as a murderous toddler. And the whole thing is, I think, holds up that whole closing sequence of a scalpel wielding yes giggling toddler hunting his own parents yeah that stays with you um it's uh uh it's very extraordinary and very sad uh piece and i think is um it's i think it comes in i think it's a zombie 
it's reanimated recently deceased. I think it counts, although he doesn't want to eat people. But it's possible that I think it's it's an interesting time in the cycle because we've now reached the very, very, very end of the 80s. We've possibly seen the, the wave. We've possibly had too much of a deluge of zombie and zombie adjacent fare. And while Pet Cemetery did very well, I think it probably didn't end up being certainly in the in the minds of critics and audiences. I don't think it was it was lumped in with the same thing. Uh, but as a little capper on this section and as a capper on the 80s, uh, your pick for the 16th of May was yeah. uh, Night of the Living Dead again. They came to pay their respects. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Why do you have to be so cruel? What? Show some respect. Now, they're running for their lives. A biologist in Stockton, California, have released reports focusing on the phenomenon, specifically on that trance-like state. Every shelter is becoming a trap. Are you sure we're going to be all right? Cooper, you got to help me out! And every road out... Don't stop no matter what happens. ...is just another dead end. They're coming right for us! George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Well, this was actually one of the first ones that cropped up. Weirdly, uh, I knew that we had to include the original, but um, I, I was dying to watch the the remake again. Actually, it's it's something that not many people talk about. That it's um, the, the original kind of hits all those beats and tropes of the things that would follow. Um, and and the most of the stuff in the remake is, that that works is taken from the original, but it is updated. It's got and it's updated with respect. Uh, Tom Savini that we've talked about has uh, is directing, um, and I believe George Romero rewrote his own script. Um, some of the 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 main differences are the female protagonist. Uh, the remake was apparently his apology for. Uh, the the depiction of Barbara in in the original, so you've got a, a much more um, forthright, um, powerful, sensible, logical uh, female in this one. Uh, the gore is over the top again. Savini's in in control. Um, it, there was originally more head exploding uh, graphic stuff that got cut down. Um, but what's what's in here is is pretty good for for 1990. Um, there's some bad language. There's that uh, the zombie makeup effects are terrific, uh, much more modern. Uh, so it's kind of a palatable alternate to the to the original. Um, there's uh, a, a heroin zombie with a syringe oh, wow. falling out of their arms, staggering around, which is hinting at something. But again, it's not. It's it's this one's not really. We working on from the the marijuana references he <laughs> was a different kettle of fish yeah the allegory is you've got to look a bit harder here i mean there's still some racial stuff because tony todd um plays the the dwayne jones role in in the original one so the Candyman fans will be uh sated here um he he's a bit over the top i have to be honest but he uh um 
you know, the, the performances are a little bit, bit heightened, a bit theatrical. Um, but it's, it's not enough to, to, to bother me too much. It's just a stylistic decision. Um, you've got, uh, some really poignant imagery, particularly towards the end, because it, it goes the places that the Romero's original kind of, uh, suggested, but didn't really get explicit with like the lynching of the zombies and the zombies used as redneck target practice and the mass burning of bodies. And uh, it ends with a very clever subversion of, of what Romero did with the original one. Um, I won't spoil it, but it's, uh, it's very interesting. Um, it doesn't outstay its welcome again. Uh, I was really pleasantly surprised at how many of these films were under 90 minutes. This one comes in at 88 and uh, it's quick and easy for a weeknight installment of of the undead. Um, so yeah, the caveat would be a bit hammy, a bit cheesy, but um, it's uh, it's got important names attached to it and in it, like in front of and behind the camera. So for me, this one deserves a place among among my fifteen. Um, I must admit, I've never seen it. Um, I, I would recommend it. I, I think, uh, particularly, you know, if, if the first one is something you know quite well, and it's it's really interesting to to see the subversions. And if you like Tom Savini, you can support him by watching something he directed. Yeah, um, I do wonder whether it was uh, successful. I must admit, I don't actually uh, know much about it either. Because um, what I think is interesting is to use this as a uh, as a a nice mid month break point here hmm. um the uh, uh the series we referenced previously the monstrum videos uh, talks about the 1990s as being a bit of a down period for zombie movies on screen and uh that is borne out in our selections when we when we come back after this uh after these commercial messages um, yeah. <laughs> there are there are very few films in the 1990s you have to you have to look a little um some of them would be the holdover. You would call them holdovers from the eighties wave of, of zombie movies as well. So um, uh, I do wonder whether, um, whether this one was successful and whether uh, if there was a lack of success, whether that affected the zombies going forward or whether it was just that Hollywood had moved on and they needed something else to try and scare us. Um, and it, it is that point that we will choose to uh, uh, take a little break. Um, we'll let you digest these guys. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, next time we speak, uh, we will be kicking off um, our uh, second half of uh, mm. May of the Dead with uh, your choice of uh, Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, a.k.a. Dead Alive. And then we will be discussing the, uh, the, the, the as we mentioned, the 90s lol and the 2000s explosive resurgence in uh, zombie popularity. Yeah, in, in video games too uh, and, and how, how Resident Evil kind of played into into things and influenced the movies that followed. And then, and then we're into the contemporary, the contemporary zombie and that'll take us from the 17th all the way to the end of May. Yeah, so um, uh, thank you very much for for joining us on this little journey through the the early period of uh, zombie mythology. The uh, you could argue potentially the first ever kind of cinema created um, 
uh, antagonist in horror, perhaps. Mm, mm. There are uh, antecedents. I would say that the Romero zombie is possibly an invention whole cloth. So uh, uh, we'll be back with you in a in a couple of weeks um, uh, before the before the end of May. So until next time, uh, thrill me. It's Devlin in London, <laughs> and join us when we return very soon keep an eye on the rewind website and uh, take care this is matt in south korea and we'll see you next time thanks for listening